Welcome to My Comic Shop History. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. This is the second of three specials tying into the release of the documentary film My Comic Shop Country, available now to purchase or rent on iTunes and Amazon. This is our special Q&A episode where I answer your questions. And joining me is a very special guest. Welcome back to the show, my wife, Stephanie. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me back, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited to hear your responses tonight. Yeah, this uh, I appreciate you doing this. I mean, we're, we're stuck together in quarantine, uh, and this is, this is adding yet another layer uh, by, by doing this podcast together. How has the quarantine been so far? Great, until you said that we were stuck here together. <laughs> <laughs> no, tr- I mean, truly, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, there's no one else in this world uh, I would rather be stuck in quarantine with. I said it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, samesies. Yeah. So the last time you were on the show was uh, just about a year ago. We did a special episode then about My Comic Shop Country. At that point, I had just put out the trailer uh, and we had had a little test screening of the first cut for some family and friends and cast and Kickstarter backers. Uh, So here we are a year later. Uh, One of the other things we mentioned in your last appearance was at the time uh, you were pregnant with our son. Now he is uh, eight months old and sleeping in the next room and hopefully he'll remain asleep while we record this, but we might have to take a break. Yes, times they have changed since uh, since just a year ago. Yes, have you been enjoying parenthood so far? Big adjustment. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it is a a a challenge and a joy to have, be having this experience, but it's all better because it's with you. Oh, well, that's very nice. You didn't have to say that, but I appreciate it. But that's I feel, what was in the script. Oh. Uh, <laughs> No, but I feel the same. And, you know, I mean, as far as being in this quarantine situation, uh, yeah, it's been a lot. I mean, you know, we hear some people, you you know, you see people on social media like, oh, I'm so bored. I'm trying to find things to do. Like we've, it's been the opposite for us. I mean, we're both working remotely. uh, So we still have our our day jobs that we're working on, obviously doing stuff like this. And then of course, taking care of an eight month old. Uh, Our days have been, days have been pretty full. Yes, very robust um, and scheduled out. So yes, boredom has not been an issue by any means. Um, And we have not learned any new skills or trades or completed any masterpieces of art. Um, I'll say any visual art. Yes, these podcasts are uh, are art. Uh, But uh, yeah, so it's, it's definitely been an experience. Uh, but we've been doing our best. And, you know, on this note, of course, I just want to say, as I've been saying in these episodes, uh, I hope everyone listening uh, is staying safe and healthy and inside and sane. Uh, all of those things. I wish everyone the best. Uh, I will reiterate the plea that I've been making to everyone in all of these episodes. Uh, support your local comic shop if you can. Reach out. See what sorts of uh, services and, and deals they might be offering. Uh, I know anything at this point is appreciated. So I've been really looking forward to doing this episode uh, because, 
you know, for once, it's like, I don't really have to generate the content. I put the call out on social media. I said, what questions do you have? Uh, you know, generally about my comic shop country, but really I said, I opened it to pretty much anything anyone wanted to ask. And I, we got a nice mix. A few people submitted multiple questions. Uh, this was primarily over Facebook, but we had, I think one Instagram one as well. Uh, so I appreciate everyone who submitted a question. Uh, there were some really great questions in there. Like I'm genuinely looking forward to doing this episode and I'm happy to have you here. Uh, you're going to be uh, throwing the questions out to me and we'll, you know, we'll have a little back and forth. So I guess, you know, without any further ado, would you like to kick us off, Steph? Sure. And it's my pleasure to do this. And I guess it's just convenient that it was your only choice by order of the governor. That's true. So let's start it off with our first question from Jeremy, who asks, what advice would you give to a first time documentary maker? Jeremy, a former customer of Alternate Realities, uh, we've kept in touch uh, over social media through these years. Uh, so that's a that's a big question. That that could be its own episode, you know, or or its own series uh, as far as advice for a first time documentary filmmaker. Uh, I guess the two things that that immediately come to mind. Um, one piece of advice. This is pretty standard. I think you would hear this. Uh, you know, from anyone who's made a documentary, but it's it's good advice, and I think there's a reason why it's repeated so often. Shoot as much B-roll as possible. However much B-roll you think you need, I don't know, double it. Um, that's something that I've learned uh, through the years. You know, and I'm proud to say, like with this with this current film, you know, it's still you know primarily you know the style of the film is interview style. You know, we have our talking heads, but uh, I really made a conscious effort to shoot as much you know footage of the stores and and customer interactions, people shelving and and going up to the register and things like that. Uh, it just breaks things up and makes things a little more visually dynamic, and it gives you you know when you need to cut, uh, you know during your your interviews, uh, it it kind of gives you some coverage for that. So definitely shoot more B-roll than you think you need. And then the other thing is, because we're really reflecting on this, uh, I would say to have as much of a roadmap for yourself as possible going into the production. Now, you know, typically a documentary is not scripted in the traditional sense, and you do have to remain at least somewhat flexible, right? Because the story can change as you're in the process of filming. You might you know, encounter something that you never would have expected. Uh, during the editing process, things can shift again and you might find a new focus or a new angle. So you have to be flexible. But I do think the the more specific a roadmap you have going in as far as, you know, not just the topics you want to cover, but specific interview questions and even, a, you know, some sort of shot list or uh, I think even even more importantly than that, some sort of sense of how the puzzle pieces of your production are going to fit together, I think that makes for an easier time in the editing process. Like when I did my comic shop documentary in 2010, I made that entire film over one summer. Now, uh, it was easy in the sense that I was only at primarily one location. That was five minutes from my house. So that made it very easy uh, as opposed to this film where we were across the country. But um, when it came to the editing process, I had a pretty specific outline that I was working off of, and that helped me move through the editing process faster. With this movie, I didn't, um, and so I think that made the editing process take a lot longer. And you know, I'm very happy with where we ended up, but again, it was a lengthy process. Uh, so I think the more the more of a roadmap you have going in, I think that definitely alleviates some of the burden when it comes to editing. Great, I think that's all great advice, and I would concur, having been on this journey <laughs> to an extent with you. Uh, I think this next question kind of speaks for itself, but Sean asks, what was it like to spend time with Sean Hendricks? Does he smell nice? He looks like he would smell nice. <laughs> 
Yes, the current owner of Fat Moose Comics and our good friend Sean Hendricks. Uh, you know, I don't have any. I don't have any commentary on his on his scent. Uh, I, he doesn't. I, I would say neutral. I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't necessarily have uh, you know any impression of, of of his. It doesn't smell bad. I would agree. I would. I would say neutral, and I think in this circumstance, it would be a good thing. Yeah, right. Like if yeah, you know, doing a sitting next to him doing a podcast, or you're, you know, you're with him at the register at the store. If you smell cologne or something, right, that could be a little off putting. Yeah. So, uh, but as far as how it is spending time with him, generally a lot of fun. I mean, there's a reason why he's been on the podcast multiple times and plays uh, as large of a role as he does in the documentary. So, uh, Sean's a lot of fun, very much. I mean, this is true. I would say with the vast majority of the people I've had, you know, on the show and in the movie, but I think Sean in particular, what you see on screen and what you hear behind the mic. I mean, that's, that's how he is in person. So, yeah. you know, I think people who have been following this, you know, I think you have a sense of his personality and it's a lot of fun. And, you know, I've been doing a number of interviews now for, you know, to promote my comic shop country. And, you know, I keep getting asked like which stores, um, not, not which stores are my favorite necessarily, but which stores, you know, sort of were closest to the experience that I had at alternate realities. And, you know, the two that I keep coming back to are Fat Moose, Sean's store, you know, and Acme Comics in North Carolina. And that's not to discount any of the other stores. They all had something interesting to offer. Um, but, you know, Fat Moose in particular, like, really captured the vibe, for me, of alternate realities. And Acme has a very different atmosphere, but still that same sense of community. So those, that's kind of what I come back to with those two stores. And those two guys in particular, Sean at Fat Moose and Jermaine, a.k.a. Lord Retail at Acme Comics, you know, I think it's fair to say those are the two guys who, of, of the people I met in the course of, you know, the production of this, you know, podcast and documentary, uh, they've truly become, you know, genuinely like we're friends and we, you know, we, we talk beyond uh, these various projects. So, uh, yeah, no, great guys. And, uh, but yeah, no, no, uh, nothing, nothing to offer on the, on the scent part of that question. I think you did answer it. Basically, in, yeah, I did. Yeah says a lot all right so next question dan asks how many days a week should i blast biceps listen so you know for people who don't know where this question comes from and and the person asking it is dan pritchard from australia he does the music that you hear uh, on the podcast and he has a bunch of songs in the documentary as well so what he's referring to for anyone who's not familiar especially if you're newer to the flat squirrel enterprise I was profiled in the New York Times in 2011 when my first film, my comic shop documentary, played at San Diego Comic-Con. And it was tremendously exciting to be profiled in the Times, really working hard to try to get back in there, because <laughs> it would really help a lot right now to get the word out about the movie, the new movie. But uh, yeah, it was tremendously exciting to be in the New York Times. It's, I mean, to this day, the biggest press that I've ever gotten. And I remember being in the hotel room in San Diego when uh, the article came out and I was reading it on my phone and the reporter in describing me, she mentioned that I was, you know, clean cut and um, that, <laughs> that I had robust biceps. So that's where this comes from. And I remember sitting in the room reading that and I mean, look, ultimately it's a compliment and it's flattering, but uh, you know, it's, I don't know, it's a little goofy. And as I was reading it, I think one of the first things, I mean, it was unexpected. So that took me, it took me by surprise. But I like one of the first things I thought of was like, oh, I'm never going to hear the end of this. And uh, various people through the years have, have had their fun <laughs> with that. Uh, I will say, though, it's been good motivation because there have been times where maybe I haven't wanted to go to the gym, but it's like it's on the record. Uh, <laughs> the certain description the of fans. me. So it's like, all right, I'll, I, I'll try to live up to that. Uh, but to answer Dan's question specifically, 
in my head, I work out like four days a week. Like that's always the goal. And I think in my mind, it's like, well, that's my schedule. And I try to hit that. But I mean, realistically, I probably averaged twice a week, maybe three times a week. I was really in a good routine with the gym in our building prior to this quarantine situation. Uh, but I would say now I probably average two, maybe three times a week. Uh, I usually do some bicep work in each, in each workout, usually, uh, but not every time. But if you're looking for a really good uh, bicep workout, preacher curls. I mean, there are a bunch of different curls you can do, but preacher curls are far and away uh, my favorite. They're very effective. I miss them very much right now since I don't have the equipment to do them. Uh, but also, you know, don't neglect the triceps. Uh, it's, not all, it's not all about the bicep work. So there you go, Dan. I know you were just busting my chops, but I gave you a real answer. And that's for physique reasons and for muscle health to keep balanced and not uh, yes. pull a muscle and do some damage there. All right. So the next question, uh, Jermaine, aka Lord Retail, um, what was the hardest thing to leave on the cutting room floor? Something you really wanted to be there, but time and flow just wouldn't allow for it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You know, we went to close to 20 stores, plus there were interviews with creators and collectors. Uh, there was the whole alternate realities piece of this. So there was a lot to fit into what was ultimately an 86-minute cut of My Comic Shop Country. I would say, and you know, you can tell me what you think, but um, I think as far as the, what I would call the action footage, you know, like the customer interactions and things like that, uh, there's not much that didn't make it in, you know? Um, right. So as far as like the action stuff, uh, I wouldn't say there was really anything that it's like, oh man, I really wish I could have gotten this in, but I, but I couldn't. Like any humorous or interesting or revealing, you know, interaction, you know, something like that, that made it in there. Uh, obviously there was a, a tremendous amount of interview footage that couldn't make it in. You know, if someone told a two minute anecdote, there's just no room for that really in, in a project like this. And, you know, we had a lot of ground to cover, uh, you know, as far as explaining how comic shops work and what the challenges are and what retailers do and showing all of that. And then the whole back issue and collectability piece of this, you know, there was a lot of ground to cover. So yeah, I mean, there are definitely, you know, large pieces of the interviews that couldn't make it in, but Shameless plug uh, for people who want to see that kind of stuff uh, on my Patreon page. I've been posting clips um, so you can get them either uh, monthly, biweekly or weekly, depending on your reward tier. Uh, so it's patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. So there's the, the deleted scenes have been, uh, you know, have been there. Um, but no, there's there, I guess a couple of things would come to mind as far as stuff that was like, uh, like I like I worked hard to try to fit it in. Right. And as for the rest of it, like I think it's valuable content, but I can recognize as the editor, like, okay, this doesn't necessarily fit. It's not that I don't like it, but it's just that it doesn't necessarily fit. But I think two instances where I was like, I really were, I was like bending over backwards and then realized like, what are you doing? Like, just, like this is just not working. One was the Jay Mizell sequence, which right. um, I recently put for anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh, I posted it though across social media. So if you follow me like anywhere, you've seen it. Um, but it's this two minute uh, deleted sequence called whatever happened to Jay Mizell. And, you know, for people who watched my, my second documentary film, By Spoon, that's all about Jay boxing up his life's work at the Empire State Flea Market in Portchester when the market closed. And it ends with him moving everything to his garage and this idea that he's going to continue trying to sell uh, his wares in his garage. And the last shot of the movie, like before the credits, is uh, the garage door coming down. And I have this deleted sequence where we pick up with Jay now five plus years later opening shot is the garage door coming up. So we pick up right from that movie. And, uh, you know, you see Jay, like, in, uh, I guess you've had the opportunity to see the, the scene, so I won't, won't really be spoiling anything. But you see that Jay, uh, at least as of the, the filming, 
uh, has held on to everything still for all those years. His customers, uh, you know, kind of left them high and dry. You know, very few of them continue to to go to his garage. He expressed a lot of frustration about that. Uh, so it kind of it spoke to the whole idea of delinquent customers, which of course plays a role in the documentary. Um, so it's this whole sequence, but I realized during the editing process, and this is where like I really had to have a, a conversation with myself and be like, does this serve a genuine purpose narratively, or is it really just that you love Jay and you wanted to have a little epilogue to one of your other movies in this? And I guess ultimately I felt that the whole idea of like holding on to your merchandise was was already represented by Odo in my mm-hmm. comic shop country uh, and the, those warehouses. And then again, the whole idea of delinquent customers, we had plenty of other current retailers speaking about it. So I didn't feel like it was necessarily needed to further highlight those aspects, like they were already covered. And it just kind of felt like what I ultimately labeled it as when I posted it uh, recently on social media, a detour. Uh, So that was one thing that, um, again, I, you know, it was great to be able to film Jay one more time. Uh, and I like the sequence. And when I went to visit him, he's in an assisted living facility now. Uh, I showed it to him on my phone and he, he really got a kick out of it. Uh, he genuinely seemed uh, like he enjoyed it. So that I was happy to do that. And you know what? I kind of like that it's its own, you know, little thing now. And mm-hmm. I think it serves as a nice little epilogue to buy spoon. So anyone who watches that, that documentary short, if you want to see like whatever happened to Jay Mizell, uh, it's there. But so that was one thing. And the other... <laughs> As you will recall, Steph, there was a lot of drama with Fat Moose Comics uh, yes. in, in, the, in the course of filming. Uh, nothing to do with Sean or anything. Um, and people who watched the extended Kickstarter cut of My Comic Shop Country, you, you saw this. It was in that cut, but not in the final version. So I won't go crazy in, in the description of this. But basically, you know, Sean Hendricks is the current owner of Fat Moose. But at the time of filming, uh, a gentleman named Matt was the owner. And there was a bit of a question as to uh, whether I would be permitted to film an interview with Elon, the original owner of Fat Moose, at the Fat Moose store. Uh, That was the original plan, but then Matt decided that he didn't want uh, me to film Elon in the store. There had been some tension there between them. And, uh, you know, it was was Matt's store, so it was certainly his prerogative to say that. And I, I understand that, and that's fine. Uh, I think it, you know, it made for somewhat of an awkward situation for, for Elon, for myself, and for Sean, who was sort of the <laughs> intermediary in all of this. Uh, and it was just a little, it was just kind of a, an awkward situation, and logistically it posed some problems because I really did want to get Elon on camera. He's the original owner of the store. He's, a, you know, a, a retailer who's been doing this for decades. Even though he doesn't own Fat Moose anymore, he owns a store called Mighty Moose out in uh, the Seattle area. And uh, and again, he was going to be in town just for this small window of time. And I ended up filming him uh, in New Jersey, very close to Fat Moose at a friend's house where he was staying. So like it all worked out and it was fine. But, uh, you know, it was kind of a lot of work to get to that point. And then I had each of them, I had Matt and I had Elon on screen, you know, separately, each addressing the situation and the tension between them. And um, and it did make it into that first cut, but ultimately I felt like it just, it, you know, it wasn't really necessary. Kind of the there was a criticism that had been leveled against Elon that he wasn't really uh, as engaged with the customers as he should have been towards the end of his tenure as owner of Fat Moose Comics. And, and he admits and that. And he admits that and he explains it in his interview. So, you know, it was fine. And so we had that little bit of back and forth. But, um, it, you know, the I want I guess initially I wanted it in the movie 
to be honest, it was because it had been such a headache just to get the interview done that I felt like, well, let me, like, I want to get something out of it sort of thing. And then, you know, drama behind the scenes at a comic shop, like, is a a thing. So I kind of wanted to have it in there because this can happen at stores. So I felt like it was true to life and I wanted to have it. And then, again, this whole idea of, like, not being super welcoming to customers, you know, that that was something that I wanted to address in the movie. But we have in the doc, uh, Ariel Johnson of, of Amalgam Comics talking about uh, the, the same idea of, you know, in her experience, you know, going into a store and the person behind the counter assuming that she's buying comics for her boyfriend, right? And I ultimately felt that was a more powerful and impactful uh, encapsulation of this issue of not always being welcomed at a store as opposed to like the whole fat, fat moves back and forth sort of thing. As opposed to the owner of a shop saying, yeah, I wasn't always welcoming. <laughs> yeah, like that's the thing. I mean, if, if he had fought it, I don't know, I might have left it in. But, you know, he, you know, he was very, you know, gracious and he accepted it and he admitted it and, and that was fine. Um, but it just got to the point where even for that first cut, like I'd spent so much time trying to boil it down to like 30 seconds. Uh, and then as I was making like my final edits and I really needed some time back, um, it, it, it just didn't stay in, but you know what the, the editing process is fascinating. And I guess one thing that I've learned and going back to Jeremy's question, I guess one other piece of advice, you know, sometimes like you'll bend over backwards trying to fit something in. And sometimes you need to take a step back and just say, well, do I really need this? Or if I take it out, does it flow better? And that was kind of what I found with, with that piece of it. Um, but anyway, so those were two things that, uh, either like in the, in the case of Jay, I really wanted to have that in there. And in the case of the fat moose drama, um, I just, I had spent so much time on it that like, I didn't, I didn't want that to have been for, for not, uh, but ultimately, you know, both of those, uh, didn't make it in. All right. The next question is from Oren who asks, which place had the best dollar bin selection? Yeah, I actually, uh, had responded to him on social media, but I'll answer it here in the question in the, in the podcast. Uh, it's so funny, actually, because I think the two stores that probably had the largest dollar bin selection were prob- were the stores that uh, don't really cater to the back issue collector market, right? Which would be Escape Pod and Challengers. I think those were because at Challengers, oh, right. all their back issues are ninety nine cents, and at Escape Pod. Like that whole room of back issues, right. I'm almost pot. Don't hold me to this, um, but I'm pretty sure like the vast majority of them are are dollar books. Obviously, there were stores with larger back issue selections, but as far as dollar bins specifically, those were the two that stuck out. And again, yeah. I think it's just kind of interesting, like the stores that you know specifically say in the movie, like we're you know this again, we don't cater to that particular market. Um, but I think that you know I think that it it goes hand in hand, right? Like they're not carrying slabbed CGC books, uh, you know, these rare vintage things, like it's, it's uh, you know, back issue fodder that they're just looking to move through quickly. Right, because we know at Escape Pod, a, uh, high-end back issues and pops, neither of those have worked uh, in Menachem's experience. Menachem, one of my favorite, my favorite moments in the movie where he's like, pie pops for, for however many years <laughs> and I never had the right ones. <laughs> that sums it up. All right, Phil had a few questions. His first one is, do you have any interesting stories, either from AR or one of the shops in the docu- um, in the doc regarding artists or writers? Yeah, that's a good question. I, nothing that immediately comes to mind, and there's probably stuff that I'm just forgetting, I guess. But, um, but you know who has a lot of great stories about creators? Mark Hammond of All Yeah Comics. He sure does. He always has a story. If you mention a creator, he'll one-up you. 
uh, with with a story about that creator or another one. So I would encourage. This was Phil. He said, "Yes, Phil, check out the uh, All Yeah Comics Facebook page. Mark does live videos pretty regularly now. Next time he does a live video, watch it. Pop on there and ask him for to share a creator story. I all but guarantee he will have one for you. And I would say, I mean, an interesting tidbit about artists and writers. The only place where we where we ran into two artists on the same day in Las Vegas at Alternate Realities in Las Vegas. Um, two artists happened to come in and you were able to to interview them. So I don't know how interesting that is, but it was that was interesting and fun for us that day. Yeah, for sure. So second question, have you had contact with many of the shops in the dock and from your podcast post-corona? Interested in seeing how they're working through this? So, yes. I mean, it's interesting, though, as far as maintaining contact with the stores that have been in the movie in particular, it's a mix. I mean, like I said before, you know, guys like Jermaine and Sean, I mean, like we're, in, you know, in regular contact. Um, and then others who, you know, it's, uh, you know, less frequent and maybe a little bit more, uh, you know, business centered, I guess. Or casual. Yeah, a little more casual. And then other stores who <laughs> never never heard from again after after the filming. Uh, I have reached out to all of the stores, you know, in advance of the release. Um, but yeah, some stores, you know, I just, the contact hasn't been there. Um, but I would say the majority of them I do, and I follow all of them on social media. So, and I've mentioned this in some of the previous episodes during this pandemic, but, you know, shops are doing all sorts of things. And, you know, and one of the things I'm proud of about the documentary is it shows you it shows you the challenges and it shows you the behind the scenes struggles of, of being a comics retailer. But the stores that are represented in the movie are all stores that are doing something interesting and innovative to try to stay relevant, right? Like in terms of the, um, you know, the, uh, the events and, you know, um, again, like the whole back issue, you know, that's that sub market of, you know, vintage back issues, you know, diversifying their product line, you know, the whole pop debate. Uh, so there are a lot of things, you know, that you see in the documentary, different things that stores are doing. And you see that again, uh, now in light of everything that's going on. So stores are doing, you know, curbside pickup. A lot of them are doing curbside pickup. Uh, I know a bunch of them are doing mail order. Uh, like Acme has been shipping out stuff like crazy. Uh, and and have, yeah, go ahead. I have to give the shout out to Jermaine who really stepped outside of his comfort zone and credits you with it. Um, that inspiration to, to, to do it, um, by hosting a, a home shopping network by Acme. Yeah. Oh, I thought Via you were. Video. I thought you were going to go somewhere else. I was going to say that. Uh, just a shout out to Acme for uh, they sent me a very nice little birthday care package well, yes, recently, which was very nice, and I appreciate a couple of Superman themed books. Um, but so they've been doing a lot of that. Um, Torpedo Comics in Vegas. They've been doing a ton of Instagram live sales. Uh, so shops are doing all sorts of things uh, to to still be able to move product and you know serve the needs of their customers. So I think that's you know, been one positive in, in a very difficult situation. Right. It kind of forces you to think outside the box. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Third question from Phil. Listening to your podcast, I see there are different, different, definite patterns and pitfalls. You know, before we started this, I said, you want to read through all the questions? You were like, no, I think I'm good. <laughs> Rewind. Listening to your podcast, I see there are definite patterns and pitfalls to opening a shop. Have you considered putting this info together in written form to help many new shop owners out? What, what? many new shop owners? 
That's well, a whole other issue. Uh, but. Yeah, I know. And I think that's there's actually another question that kind of will we'll get at that. Uh, well, how do I say this and not sound like a jerk? No, to be honest. Um, so I've, I've heard from a number of people have reached out over the years, people who were either starting up a new store or were taking over an existing store and have said that they found the podcast to be a very helpful resource for them. And I love that. And that's very, that means a lot to me. I'm glad that the podcast can serve that purpose for that select group of people who are opening or taking over a store. Um, so the podcast is out there. It's free. It always will be. So, you know, it's always there for people who want to hear from other retailers and for, from people who want to, you know, especially going back to the first season, listening to the, the downfall of alternate realities. I think there is a lot of good information to be gleaned from the podcast. And the documentary, I think, is a, is a very good guide. I mean, maybe not so much about like opening a store, but as far as things that you can do to um, combat some of the challenges and to you know run a, a successful store, I think there's a lot, a lot of really great stuff in there. As far as me like actually sitting down to write a guide, uh, no, and I don't, you know, not to be so mercenary about this, but it's it's the sort of thing where I don't, I would really have to make significant amount of time to do something like that, and it would need to be worthwhile for me to do so, and I don't really foresee a scenario where it would be now. Would it be great if, say, Comics Pro or Diamond or one of the publishers or some entity said, hey, kid, you, you know, <laughs> you've, you've talked to a lot of retailers, like you've been to a lot of stores, you've seen a lot of stuff. It sounds like you've gleaned a lot of insight. We would love to commission you to do something like this. That would be a conversation I'd be interested in having. But as far as me taking it upon myself to say, hey, I'm going to spend the next few months writing a how-to guide for retailers... And I don't foresee myself doing that. Also, you know, I, I have gained a lot of insight, but at the same time, you know, my expertise only goes so far. I don't have the firsthand experience of owning my own shop. So, you know, uh, I, I couldn't necessarily approach it from that perspective. But uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of everything I've learned from talking to all of these retailers and seeing all of these stores, like if I were opening my own store, I know how I would do it. Um, but yeah, as far as me, like taking the time to put together a guide like that, uh no, in a world of infinite time, yes, I would be happy to do that. But I, that's just not the situation that I find myself in. Also, it's so funny because, you know, like with the documentary, it, you know, when I was shopping it around, right, to the various distributors, uh, you know, obviously we we ultimately found one that saw the potential in the movie. But, you know, I think one of the things that I ran into was this idea that like, oh, it's too it's too niche of an audience, right? Comics fans. And, you know, it was sort of an uphill battle to try to say to, to people like, no, like, yes, comics fans are the natural target audience for this project, but it taps into some ideas that are really universal, like this, the, you know, the, the idea of wanting to have meaningful face-to-face, -face, right? Like, that doesn't matter if it's a comic shop or a bookstore or a record store or whatever it is, like, people can identify with that. Um, but that was definitely sort of a hurdle that I had to overcome and, and sort of say, like, no, like, this this can reach a wider audience. Um, as I move forward with my creative endeavors, though, the idea isn't to get even more specific. You know, like with the, the comic shop documentary, it's like, okay, that's, that's, that's one audience. But now to like try to target specifically what I would imagine would be a very, very minuscule pool of people of prospective comic shop retailers. Uh, no, like I said, I just, that's just not, I don't have the time for that. And I don't think it would be worthwhile. But again, the podcast is there. I hope people continue to use it as a resource. 
and I don't know if anyone's listening to this and, and they're thinking about buying a store, opening a store, and they want to, I mean, I'm happy to, to talk to anybody. So I think that's a, a, all great points to, uh, to bring up based on this. So tying into that, the next question. Oh, wait, I don't mean to cut you off, but oh. let, me, let me throw that back to you. If I said, hey, I know what I want to do next, my next creative project, I'm going to write a book, and it's going to be all about how to open a comic shop. What would, you, what would you say? I mean, I think that goes to to your point. I mean, while I think it is an interesting subject and you certainly have the uh, a, a wide breadth and depth of knowledge about it, it comes down to not that, okay, you should only write or do creative endeavors, you know, for the audience or, uh, you know, for it to be seen or heard or watched, but... Yes, it it would almost be like it would just be an exercise in uh, just an exercise for the a writing exercise as opposed to a broad audience. I mean, again, especially uh, in the current times where comic shops were struggling before coronavirus. Um, I mean, some, you know, some are, are thriving, I'll say, but, you know, it, it's hard. It's challenging. It's um, the margins are so uh, so small that that it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of dedication and it, it, it's been said you know many times and I don't think and, and no none of the owners would take offense I don't think to this or would, would disagree and I think they've all alluded to this of you know you don't do this for you don't get into this for the money so um, you know post corona I don't know uh, what that prospect weeks we, we've talked you know whether it w- is you actually opening a shop you know that We've, you know, joked about that, but, you know, somewhat seriously discussed that prospect um, to an extent. But uh, I think the same kind of applies in in this this post-corona world that we, we yet to know what it will bring. Yeah. So, Phil, I don't mean to poo-poo the idea. It's a, it's a lovely thought, um, but I just don't think it's for me. But again, if someone came a-calling and hired me to do this, then, right. again, that would be a different story. Every time you referred to that it's like are they calling you back in 1950 when they say hey kid (laughs) (laughs) are they come a calling you can have a gentleman caller at the door they're paying man it's all right (laughs) (laughs) i won't turn them away segue now it's not segue anymore but aaron's question is what are things people can do to ensure the survival of comic shops and i assume that's in relation to uh, the current global pandemic Oh, so a nice light question. Do you want to take this one, Steph? Yeah, exactly. Just so for a lighthearted uh, response, keeping things things happy and upbeat and giving people a, a reprieve from what's going on. Um, well, hopefully by the time people hear this, maybe the situation will uh, be a little bit more hopeful. I mean, I don't know. this up. So this will be out. We're recording this late April. It'll be out May 6th. So I think we'll still more or less be in the, the current situation. But okay, I was trying to be positive, no, I, but... <laughs> Uh, so this again, this is a massive question. It's a great question, uh, but this is a big question, and this is something that I, you know, I certainly don't have all the answers. Uh, I think this would be its own podcast or mini series or something because there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, a lot of this though. Ha- I mean, if you look at this my comic shop history as a whole, I think we we get at a lot of these uh, ideas uh, in, in in everything that we've done. But if I were to specifically try to answer this question, I think that. And even, I mean, yes, in the context of the current crisis, but even just speaking to the general uh, challenges of comics retail, based on my experience as someone who worked at a store for many years 
and has now been to many stores and talked to many retailers. I think that there are things that can happen on uh, multiple levels within the the different uh, categories of players in the industry. And then there's something really big and big picture. So as far as the, like the more day-to-day stuff and uh, the different levels that I was mentioning. So, you know, and again, all of these things have been touched on in, in the various podcasts, but you know, from the, from the customer perspective, you know, if you order something from your store, if you have a pull list, you should honor that. You pick up the books that you've ordered, pick up the statues. Uh, or at least communicate. Or at least communicate, right? You know, so I mean, that's definitely something, you know, delinquent customers, that's a, that's a major problem. You've heard that many times. Uh, so that's something that customers can do. Uh, I think, you know, greater communication between retailers and customers. And I think that's probably ultimately more on the retailer. But if the customer sort of wants to take this on, I think that's great. But the more communication in terms of gauging interest. And again, a lot of retailers already do this. You see, there's a whole sequence about it in the documentary. But, uh, you know, talking to customers to gauge interest. I mean, one of the biggest challenges for retailers is ordering comics, knowing how many to order. So having better intel from the regular clientele as far as, okay, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I'm not. uh, I think that would help. So, uh, you know, at, at that level, I think a little more communication um, you know, would be helpful. I mean, as far as things that, that retailers can do, I mean, again, I think all the things that you see in the documentary, those are all examples. And this is not to say that every store should do all of these things, right? Because each store has its own needs and its own audience. So, you know, like even when I talk about diversifying a product line, like, yes, generally speaking, I do think a store should be somewhat diversified. You don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket with anything, but at the same time, would I say, oh, every store should carry pops? No. If your audience has no interest in that, no, it would be foolish to do that. Um, but as far as being as diversified as you can, so that if and when something like this happens and comics aren't being printed or shipped, you have something else that can kind of help you make it up a little bit. Uh, so I think there's that. You know, once you get to the distribution level, you know, common complaints about diamond, late books, or not late books, but uh, missing books or damaged books, you know, those are things that diamond always says that they're working on improving. Funny enough, you know, they, they changed the type of box that they use recently, Diamond, and they said it was to help protect the book so they wouldn't get dinged up. Uh, when I, we mentioned the care package I got from Acme, and it was in one of those new boxes. I don't really see how it would be an improvement. Right, what did I, you said, you said, look at these new boxes. You said something, or like, why? And I said, and my simple response was, no, they're cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, they. Uh, I, I don't get it. I. I don't know. They fold in a different way. I, I'm not. I wouldn't be able to do an accurate uh, description of how they're different. But uh, I didn't look at it and think, oh, I see why this would protect the books. Uh, so you know, I think at that level, you know, there's there's that piece of it. Where you hear a lot of frustration from retailers, you know, often has to do with the publishers. And again, this is all captured in the documentary, but. Uh, you know, one aspect of this is the qualitative nature and subjective nature of, you know, it, this is art that we're dealing with here. So, you know, Paul Levitz has a great line in the documentary where if you run a bake shop, the quality of what you sell is up to you. If you run a comic shop, the quality is up to other people. And it's subjective. It's not a widget that, okay, it's being made by someone else, but you know that it's meeting certain technical specifications, right? Like this is art and people, you know, stories and, and, and art might resonate with some customers and not with others. And you have no control over that. Uh, so that's one piece. I don't know that there's really any answer to that, but, you know, late books, you know, that's, that's a common complaint. Um, and 
imperfect information. I know retailers are, you know, uh, often express frustration over the fact that, you know, not only do they have to order months in advance and, uh, you know, they don't always have an accurate sense of what their customers are looking for. But beyond that, they're basing their decisions on a couple of lines of description in previews. So the counter argument to that, though, is, you know, publishers would probably counter and say, well, we can't we can't tell retailers, we can't give away the, the spoilers and surprises to retailers because they might leak it. And that, that there might be a valid argument there. Um, I don't know what the workaround would be. I don't know if there's some way that some sort of program that retailers can go through to demonstrate their trustworthiness to a re- I, I, like I, I don't know what the answer would be there. Um, but I think that's the, I think that's the response you would get from a publisher if you were to request, hey, if there's going to be like a big story, like you need to let us know what it is so we know to order more. Uh, so again, I don't know that there's necessarily, uh, you know, a, a, an answer to that. Uh, and then again, you know, the lack of returnability, that's another thing that, that's really big. So if publishers were able to offer more in that sense, that, that might alleviate some of the burden. But then the cost would be higher. Right. So all. exactly. So there's the trade-off there. So I mean, I guess that's a long way of saying like, but there, there are, again, there are these different levels, right? Going from customer to retailer, to distributor, to publisher, there are these different levels and there are frustrations and challenges at each level. And I think there are things that can be done um, by each player within each level that could potentially make for a more thriving business. But I think, and I think all of the challenges that I just rattled off, I think they can accumulate and snowball, and they can be store killers in, in certain instances if, if all of these things are happening, right? Like if books are, you know, coming out late and they're not very good and your ordering is off because you don't know what customers are going to want and then the customers don't pick up the books like if, and, and books are damaged, right? Like if all these things are happening, uh, it's, it's super hard. But I think that if you really want to talk about stores not only surviving but actually thriving, I think it's, it's growth. You need growth beyond, you know, the existing base. And I think... I don't know that it's necessarily something that individual shops can accomplish, nor do I think it's something that should be on them to accomplish, right? So like in the, in my comic shop country, we have a lovely sequence where Mark Hammond from All Yeah Comics goes and sets up at Alamo Draft House, the mo- local movie theater, right? And tries to get people as they're going into the new Avengers movie. And he says in the movie, like they've picked up some new customers that way. And so that's great. Like that's a great example of a store taking the initiative and saying, hey, all these people go to the movies. Let me see if I can get some uh, some crossover here. But right, it's about closing that gap between whatever is causing it or what the reason is, but closing that gap that clearly exists between comic book readers and comic book movie slash TV show fans. And not to, I'm not trying to throw shade or getting on a soapbox here by any means, but I think it is. But and who's to say what what the I don't know what the the answer to that is. But um, if one of the Chris's because um, they're typically listening um, to the podcast, so if, if you're listening to, to this episode, um, just make sure I mean, like Evans Pratt, yeah, yeah exactly, of course. Um, I know they're they're avid listeners, so um, if they happen to be listening to this particular episode, you know, do a signing at a at a at a store one day. I mean, or put you know tweet or Insta or Facebook live about you know the importance of the the source material that maybe doesn't quite get credited in in the way it it should be and that's exactly you know that's what I, w- I was getting at with this where it's like again you know you look at a mark hammond setting up at a theater and again that's great 
But I think, again, if you really want to talk about major growth, I think there needs to be a large-scale awareness campaign. And I think that's something that really only can be undertaken by, you know, these the parent companies. Someone with an audience. Yeah, I mean... An existing audience. Yeah, you know, it's one thing, you know, for Marvel Comics or DC Comics or individual shops, but if Marvel Studios and Disney... And Warner Brothers and AT and T. Never speak ill of Disney. Yes, yes, that's a whole other. <laughs> Steph, Steph is a massive Disney fan. I, I am uh, less, less uh, enthused by by Disney. It's it's just not for me. But uh, but if though, but that's the thing. If if the movie divisions and if the parent companies were to undertake something like this, I think that could help move the needle, and. If you captured even just a small percentage of the people who are going to the movies and people who are watching the shows and got them thinking about like, oh, there are comics out there. And even if they started with a digital comic and then maybe wanted to learn more, wanted actual personalized recommendations, not just what a logarithm uh, suggests that they'll like, that hopefully that would get them into a store. But like, yeah, to your point, you know, the actors are... And I've, I've always felt this way. It's like, you know, at the end of the movies, like, yes, those post-credit scenes, they're a lot, a lot of fun. I look forward to them, you know. Most of the time. Most of the time. A lot of, sometimes they're not quite worth the wait. But it's like, I don't know. What if once at the end of one of the movies, instead of like an actual scene, it was one of the Chris's being like, hey, did you like this movie you just saw? Well, guess what? It has its origins in the pages of a comic book. And you can get them <laughs> at, and maybe, you know, in each local market, they have a list of nearby stores. It's like... You know, maybe something like that would help. Now, I guess, and this, I guess this is the lawyer in me that I always want to give the counter argument. You know, it's like from those companies' perspectives, you know, not to be cold about this, but they might counter with, well, like, what, like what's really in it for them necessarily? And, you know, to your point, maybe it's enough to show gratitude for where these stories come from. I mean, like billions of dollars are being made off of you know, these characters and ideas and concepts that come from comic books. So shining a light on the comics, you know, shouldn't need to be a hard sell <laughs> to these companies. But uh, I, I don't know. Perhaps it is. And I think it's synergistic. I mean, why not give fans, you know, there's only, you know, one Guardians movie every X number of years. They could be reading comics all year long. To yeah. Extent, you know, so um, when there isn't other material being released as right. frequently. So I, you know, that was, I, I, I think hopefully a, a, as full an answer as I can give on that question, but I, I really do think it comes down to a large scale awareness campaign. And again, it's not that comic shops can't do that, but they, their reach only goes so far. Their resources, uh, you know, uh, will only get them so far. I think that that needs to come from somewhere else. And I, I, I don't think it's inappropriate to think or to at least have one of these companies entertain it. Uh, you know, one other aspect to this though, uh, where, potentially i've been thinking about this a lot like with digital comics and you know regular listeners will know i i i am a proponent of, of digital comics especially you know we've had very limited space now we've been in a one-bedroom apartment uh you know for a while and now of course we have our son and so space is really really tight and you know that's one of the reasons why you know again always my heart is always with the comic shops i would always advocate going to your local comic shop i continue going to stores but i do also like the the digital reading experience but one thing that's interesting about digital comics, and I know you've heard me, you know, go on about this, is that uh, 
you know, Marvel and DC, right, they have their subscription services, a la Netflix or Hulu, where, you know, you pay a flat rate and you can read as many comics as you want. The newest comics are not there. With Marvel, you have to wait six months before new comics are added. For DC, it's a year. Um, and if you want to read the newest Marvel and DC comics, you can buy them individually on Comixology uh, for the same cover price as the print version. Uh, so this is an interesting aspect to this because for as much as we can beat up on publishers, and I gave a number of <laughs> instances just a few minutes ago of how publishers you know, could potentially do a better job, I do think that um, this might be an instance where publishers are deferring to comic shops. And I think the reason why you see the same price point for digital comics, the same price point you know, for digital as, um, as, as print is not to undermine the retailers and to avoid, you know, what I'm sure would be massive retailer pushback if, for example, you could buy the newest comic at 99 cents, for example, right? Um, like, I know for me, like, that's definitely, like, I, I don't think I've ever bought, uh, like, a new comic digitally. And one of, the, one of the reasons is, it's like, yeah, if I'm going to pay the same amount of money, why why would I get a digital version where I don't have anything to show, you know, I don't have anything uh, tangible, you know, and part of that is the collector mentality, but part of it is also like just ideologically, it's like their cost to make this product digitally is vastly lower. Like they're not, yes, they're paying the talent, but they're not, there's no shipping costs, there's no printing costs. So it, it, it troubles, it, it, it frustrates me that, uh, you know, the, the price point would be the same. But again, I do think it's an instance where, you know, publishers are deferring to comic shops. Maybe there's another reason to it that, I, that I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant of. Um, but maybe there's a way to leverage digital comics in such a way that you're able to access the people who currently wouldn't even think of going to a comic shop, expose them to comics, and then, again, you need the next level of getting them from the digital into a store. Uh, and again, I don't know what, what the solution to any of this would be, but I just wonder if, I just feel like as long as the the digital price point remains the same, I feel like there will always be sort of um, a limit to how many new people you're going to reach. And I don't know, maybe there's just some way to leverage digital to attract a new reader and then to funnel them into a store. Do you, I don't know if you remember when we interviewed Wade for the documentary, mm -hmm. Mark Wade, uh, which was a great interview and a, a bunch of his sound bites made it in. There was one piece that didn't, but that I, I kind of tucked away because I thought it was an interesting idea. He was of the opinion that, you know, with digital comics that, you know, if you can get people at least initially to read digitally, uh, ultimately they will make their way to a store. And he sort of equated it to, um, to iTunes, for example, like if you didn't know what music was, <laughs> you know, in this hypothetical example, right? If you like had no exposure to music before and you went into the iTunes store, where would you begin, right? right. Same sort of thing. Like if you've never had any exposure to comics and you know, you're, you're, you're in comiXology or something, it would be so daunting. Like you would, you in theory would want that, again, that face-to-face -face and, you know, the ability to have a conversation with someone, tell them your taste, have them steer you, point you in the right direction. So I don't know. I guess I just, I wonder if there's some way where, you know, digital comics could kind of be used in that way. Um, again, there's a lot of ifs and a lot of questions and I, I don't, I don't have solutions, but those are things that I kind of wonder about. Then I think it's kind of a paradox if you're saying that digital comics could be an entry point but that entry point is too daunting for someone who has no background knowledge 
I mean, I guess it's sort of like if, like I get what you're saying, but I guess it's sort of like if you can get someone to read like a comic <laughs> digitally, but then they want to kind of get, they want to go beyond that and they want to, you know, find out what else they would like. That's where more of the store respect, would, would come into play. Yes, like at, at first blush, it seems like it would work, but how are they going to find the comic that they like that's going to make them want to read the next one? So just to play devil's advocate, <laughs> that it's a more challenging prospect than than simply getting them to to go online and, and read a comic to get them hooked. True. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't disagree. And, and actually, I'm, I'm glad we continue this, this line, because I guess one other thing that I, I see as a roadblock with just comics generally, whether it's digital or, or, or physical, because I think this is something that we're running into with the documentary, right, where you can uh, rent it for like $3.99 on Amazon or, or iTunes or buy it for like $9.99, right? And I and we actually, we, we've done well so far. Like the distributor was very pleased with our initial launch. And uh, we actually, this was really nice. We had uh, like proportionately, typically the the rentals outnumber the, the purchases. Uh, but we had like a surprisingly high number of people buying the movie instead of renting it, which was great. Right. So to everyone who, who has done that, I appreciate it very much. But um, so again, I think we had a solid launch. Obviously, you always want the numbers to be higher. And I can't help but think that, uh, you know, one potential roadblock is if you're a viewer and you have the option, like if you have a Netflix and a Hulu subscription, right, you pay a flat rate and you can watch as much as you want on those platforms. And you're sitting down at night and you're deciding what to watch. And it's either watching something for quote unquote free because you have your subscription on Netflix or Hulu or paying three ninety, even though three ninety nine is not, uh, you know, a, a, a huge sum, but it's still something. And it's still another step that you have to take to watch my comic shop country. <clears throat> I don't know. I wonder if, you know, if that's perhaps holding some people back and same thing with comics, right? Like it's probably not the easiest sell for someone who's, who has no experience with comics to be like, Hey, do you want to read comics at the three ninety nine each? I, you know, again, I, cause I feel like people now have this mindset of these subscription models uh, so I wonder if that is a potential roadblock as well. Right. Well, and I guess as an, a tributary of that, that, uh, you know, there is just so much other content out there that if they're not accustomed to reading comics to begin with, then if they're, if they would actually seek it out. Yeah. So the next question is from James. What shops have declined to be interviewed for the podcast? None. Uh, unless I'm forgetting, uh, none, no store has outright said, no, I'm not interested. There, there have been a few couple stores that I just never heard back from. And I mentioned this on the show before, like when we went out to Palm Desert a few years ago for season three of the podcast, there were three stores in the Palm Desert, Palm Springs area. And I reached out to all three and two got back to me and were on the show. And the other one I just never heard from. Um, and I'm trying to think, I don't know of any others that, uh, outright didn't respond. There have been a few where like they expressed interest and we went back and forth, like trying to schedule it. And then I just stopped hearing from them. Uh, so there were a few instances like that. Like I, I tried to get JHU, Jim Hanley's unit, or right. was formerly known as Jim Hanley's universe. Now it's just JHU. Uh, I tried to get them on the show and I'm friends with the guys on Facebook and they, they seem really nice and everything. It just scheduling didn't work out. Uh, so there have been a few instances like that, but no one who's, uh, who's outright refused. I think for the most part, you know, they, they see it as a positive. I mean, it's, it's, right. and look, the show doesn't have the largest reach in the world, but we have our audience and it's a way to get the word out about their store. Uh, so I think they see it as a positive. I think, you know, 
you know, maybe earlier on, they didn't know as much of what the show's been about, but now the show's been out for a few years and, you know, we've been gotten some nice press and, you know, Newsarama and Comics Beat. So I think the show has enough, uh, enough behind it where someone would say, okay, this is, this is going to be a positive thing. Um, and you know, it's funny cause they're at least in the instance of like, I mean, Midtown Comics is, is definitely one example, but a number of other stores as well, like their, their reach on social media dwarfs mine. So, you know, there's, there have definitely been instances where, I think I'm benefiting more, you know, just in terms of, of reach uh, than they are. But I think all of them see it, you know, as something uh, worthwhile, or at least I, I hope so. And I hope that's, you know, one of the reasons why they've done it. Right. And even Midtown Comics did agree and exactly. came to fruition. Actually, before we get to the next question, I want to take a moment here and give some shout outs to our sponsors, the folks that uh, help us uh, produce this show. So first up, we have The Hive Comics and Games, an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, The Hive is where to be. Come face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. The Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. Um, I just want to mention, obviously, we are dealing with this current pandemic. Uh, I do follow the Hive on social media. And funny enough, going back to our earlier discussion, the current owner of the store, uh, he was, was one of those people who, who reached out and said that the the, the podcast was helpful uh, as he was preparing to take over the store. So we wish him and the Hive you know, continued success, especially as they're navigating this current uh, situation. Uh, I checked on what they're doing, and uh, you can order through their website, and they do have curbside pickup. Uh, so I do encourage uh, folks, especially if you're in the Texas area, please check out uh, The Hive, uh, especially during this uh, incredibly challenging time. Uh, we also have our family of film festivals, and I don't know that I've ever told this story. So uh, I'll do the commercial in a second, but sort of our liaison to these festivals, Steph, is a gentleman, a former customer of Alternate Realities named Steve Rogers. Right. Who, of course, that's the same name as uh, as Captain America. And I don't know if you remember, but uh, when uh, By Spoon, the Jay Mizell story, played at the Hang On To Your Shorts Film Festival in Asbury Park, mm -hmm. we had uh, some time to kill during the day, and we went over to Red Bank to Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash. And Steve, in addition to being connected to the festivals, uh, was also friendly with uh, one of the guys at uh, at the stash, and he recommended that I bring, uh, I think this is when I had, I don't know if I was doing the Kickstarter. I don't know if this was pre or post Kickstarter, but I had, I had postcards. Uh, and he suggested that I bring some to give to this guy at the stash. He wasn't there when I went, um, but I went up to the person at the counter and, and I said, oh, Steve, Steve Rogers <laughs> told me to give this to this other guy. And he had the expression that you would typically, I'm like, I wasn't shocked. And I had to, I had to quickly say like, well, not, not, not that Steve Rogers, the, the real Steve Rogers. Do you remember this? Yes. Yeah. It's very awkward, but, uh, but we thank Steve for, uh, you know, for, uh, again, being our, our liaison, um, with these festivals. So it's a family of film festivals, the Brightside Tavern Film Festival in Jersey City, New Jersey, uh, this August, the Hang On To Your Shorts Film Festival, of course, in Asbury Park uh, in September. And the Point Lookout Film Festival on Long Island uh, this November. Uh, so you can get tickets for these events at brownpapertickets.com. And if you're a filmmaker, you, you can submit your work via Film Freeway. Uh, so again, all these events are still months away. So we hope that uh, they can all proceed as planned and that people can enjoy them. Uh, we also want to say 
Uh, be sure to listen to the official Hang On To Your Shorts podcast via a shared universe podcast network. And the organizer of these festivals, uh, Chris Cullen, he has a new show out. Uh, it's called Cullen on Film. Uh, and actually, one of the earliest episodes he had, uh, Ashley Williams, who, among other things, played Victoria on How I Met Your Mother. He interviewed her. Uh, so that's so that's a cool thing. So you can uh, check that out. All right. So we want to thank our uh, our sponsors. And I guess we'll get back into our questions. All right. So the next few questions are from Joe. The first one is, do you wish you could have gone to more comic shops? Also, do you think you will do a sequel? Joe, did I not go to enough comic shops for you? My goodness. 20 stores. People can't get enough. So, uh, no. I was really thinking about this. You know, and it's funny, Steph. I don't know if, I don't know if we ever even talked about this. This might have just been like in my notes, but... The earliest, like earliest, earliest incarnation of my comic shop country, like when I was, I just had like a legal pad and I was sketching out ideas. The earliest incarnation of this, I was thinking like four stores. Like I was thinking a very small number of stores in different parts of the country uh, and that I would just tell the story that way. And I'll be honest, I think there's a version of this movie that could exist that just uses a handful of stores and still tells a story effectively. Mm -hmm. But as I was, especially as I was thinking about the Kickstarter and the eventual movie, I felt that there was an element of spectacle that would be attractive to backers and to and ultimately to viewers if we had a larger number of stores. And then also, you know, where we are in the tri-state area here, like in, in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, like there are plenty of stores that are easily drivable. So it's like, well, okay, I was easily able to like rack up the number of stores uh, without putting too much of a burden on us or the production. Uh, so, you know, again, for those couple of reasons, I quickly, you know, the, the number of stores escalated, but it, you know, the earliest version was a very small number. And as far as like, do I wish I could have gone to more? No. I mean, I think the law of diminishing returns kind of comes into play here. Like at a certain point, I don't know how much value yet another store would add. And that's not to say that I have no interest in other stores, you know, and, and like there are definitely stores like, uh, I mean, you know, Mile High Comics is a great example in Colorado, like this massive operation. Like, yeah, that would be cool to go to and see. Um, I think these it, stores told this story. If there was another story or if it was, if it were to be a just survey of more stores, then that's another story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think just adding more for the sake of the number, I think the narrative starts to crumble. Uh, at that point, you know, I'm like, I'm happy that, you know, there, there are a couple stores in the documentary that are, that are, their appearances are a little bit more fleeting, but, um, the majority of the, the vast majority of the stores in the documentary, I, they might feel otherwise. I don't know if they were like, we, they filmed here for hours and I'm only in it for a few minutes. But I, I, from my perspective, I feel that the vast majority of stores that we filmed, um, they get a fair amount of play, like whether it's, even if it's more of like a, a moment or a sequence, but like they carry the ball for at least some portion of the movie and, you know, really speak to, you know, something that we're trying to illustrate. And then there are stores where obviously we spent a lot of time and, and they, they got even more play, but, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm very comfortable with the number of stores I definitely wouldn't have added. Um, so yeah, no. Although there was one store, unfortunately, that we did film at that didn't make it. In Chicago. Yeah. Do you, you know, that I mentioned that when we filmed our, when we recorded our podcast special a year ago, I brought this up and then you told me you should, no, you shouldn't mention that. You should take it out. So I took it out. Now you brought it up. I feel like enough time has passed where it's okay to mention it now. Yes. Yes. 
No, they were it's first aid comics, and I would recommend the sh- the store. And they've been on the podcast, and they were wonderful. Their whole their whole uh, shtick is they wear uh, lab coats, like their doctors prescribing comics. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was a great crew there. Yeah, and the owner is James, a wonderful person. I mean, it's a great story. It just, um, it, to be honest, some of the footage didn't come out quite right, and that's on me. Uh, and then again, it was just a matter of uh, just the the time. There's only so much real estate in the movie, so uh, yeah. I mean, that was one story that we filmed at that didn't make it in. Uh, and then we also filmed at uh, West Village Comics in the city, which subsequently closed. They were only in it in the movie a little bit in the fir- in the initial cut, uh, and the store closed, and uh, it just became the sort of thing where. I felt like, I I don't know, I, like I guess I could have just left it in as it was, but from my perspective, I felt that if I left in that store, I would have to acknowledge the fact that they closed. And, you know, especially as we're, you know, towards the end of the documentary and we're summing up and everyone's talking about how much it meant to them, I just felt like that might kind of undermine the what, what we were going for at the end of the movie. Uh, and again, only a little bit had made it in anyway. Um, but both both retailers uh, associated with those stores uh, were, were super understanding. And I appreciate that very much. Um, uh, so, yeah. Oh, and then oh, a sequel. <laughs> what do you think? Do you think I would or should do a sequel? I think it would. Again, it would have to be a, a different. I don't know that it would necessarily be a sequel per se, unless unless there were some development in with a particular store or um in this industry generally that was uh, a story that needed to be told i would agree with that i mean i guess i feel there i guess there are a couple of components to this this goes back to what i was saying before about like writing the book for prospective retailers again if you know uh, some platform came to me and said, hey, we saw the movie, like we want you to do more and I were commissioned to do this. That's why that would be one thing. Even then though, I think it would really have to be like, well, all right, what's the angle? Because if it's just me doing the same thing, but with more stores, I don't know that I'm necessarily interested enough to do that. Um, So, but as far, but either way, like, is it something that I would self-start like I did with this one? Uh, no, for a couple of reasons, but I guess the at the heart of it is I'm I'm incredibly proud, and I felt that I said what I needed to say uh, on on the subject of comic shops, and I think the I you know again it's uh, self serving of me to say, but I, you know I think it's a strong product and a strong film, and um, yeah, to sort of just do a sequel where I go to more stores, I don't I don't see that necessarily being. Uh, the path. Um, yeah, I guess that's the, if, if, uh, again, I, I were approached to do this and, or if, you know, some development occurred and I mean, sad to say, I mean, it, it, it could, depending on what the landscape of comic shops looks like after the current pandemic, you know, then it's something that I would entertain. But do you remember initially the idea that I had after this project was to do an international version? Do you remember this? Right. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, I think pretty pretty early on into making this one, I was like, that would be way, like it was hard enough. It was hard enough schlepping the equipment, especially when we were flying, and then adding the international component. I just felt like uh, this this would be way too demanding. But I had the idea that I had the original ending that I had in mind for my comic shop country. You know, you and I, we we've well, you've been to Italy. I've never been, uh, but we were 
uh, at some point we will go. But uh, there was a period of time where we were thinking about a trip. Like we didn't get so far as to actually plan it. Right. But we were thinking about it. And the sort of the idea that I had would be like the last shot of my comic shop country would be like you filming me in Italy, like walking into an Italian comic shop. And the voiceover would have said like, I've explored America, but there's a whole world out there. And, and that kind of would have led into the next thing. So that was a very, very early idea. Uh, but again, just from a production standpoint, um, uh, you know, I, again, to, especially to do that independently is just, I think, too much. So. Uh, Joe's next question is, what's your least favorite comic story or comic film of the last 20 years? Yeah. And there's a question. So I think they're, they're they go together, right? Because there's what's my favorite and least favorite, right? The sub question is from Justin. That's yeah. what's your personal favorite comic story or book film um, over the last twenty years? I know. I was really thinking about these. The, this pair of questions. I was really thinking about. I was like, what? I mean, favorite and least favorite. Least favorite is kind of hard because I don't. It's funny. Like even when we do book club episodes and stuff, like I always pick stuff I like. I mean, and we discuss them in an analytical way. It's not just us gushing about it for an hour. But like, I've never picked a book club selection for the podcast of something I didn't like because it's like, well, I don't want to sit there for an hour and bash it. Like, that's not what I want to put out there. So I think I'm a little reluctant to answer the least favorite, but, you know, I like to keep it real with with our listeners, so I will. Um, But first, I'm very curious to ask you, um, I mean, again, I know your your comics reading has been, you know, very limited, but as far as the movies, do you have a favorite and least favorite of of the last 20 years, which is basically this whole modern era of superhero movies? I mean, we always have our post movie uh discussions and critiques um i mean i don't know it might be i mean unfortunately like the least favorite might might be um you can say it it's okay (laughs) i mean it might be suicide squad although there were that had some redeeming qualities but just the way that it came together the end result wasn't you know what the most you know what i'm looking for is the most interesting and most compelling story um the way it was it was put together not to say that some of the performances many of the performances were were excellent um so there's that um favorites is hard i don't know were there any movies i don't know that it was a a comic movie over the past year where we came out saying we didn't really have any negative critiques of it but i i feel like it probably was not a comic movie i mean endgame i felt like we were we were very pleased with that Yes, that's true. That's true. But all, but, but so you, you don't have a pick for like all like again of the past twenty years, uh, like a favorite. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's just been so, so long since we've even discussed <laughs> films because we've just been in the bubble of our one bedroom apartment. True. Um, that I'm just. I'm, I'm blanking on what there even would be to choose from. Well, let that marinate for a bit. So I'll, let me say this. I, I'll, I'll answer the question specifically, but as far as like generally what my tastes are, I've enjoyed really, I would say all of the, virtually all of the Marvel Studios movies. Like I enjoy them. Right. Um, Same here. You know, I agree, I think with the majority of critics and fans, like Thor, The Dark World was probably their, their weakest one. But even that, it's watchable. It's nothing horrible. Um, I tend to like the the Cap movies better than than the others, um, and I I think Incredible Hulk uh, was was underrated. I felt like that. Um, 
was better than it gets credit for. And I think Endgame was astounding. I mean, I really just think that what they were able to accomplish uh, in terms of the the world building, you know, creating the shared cinematic universe, all the, the buildup, the payoffs, uh, you know, as a fan, it like it checked off every box, like it was it was emotional, like I, I enjoyed it a lot. But like, I at the same time with these Marvel movies, while I enjoy them, and I'm entertained for the two plus hours, which is really all they need to do. I don't find that they usually stay with me after. Like, they don't really resonate right. with me to the extent where it's like, like I'm thinking about them days after, very rarely. Uh, so I don't know that I would say, like, any of the Marvel Studios movies are, like, my favorite. Uh, you know, when you get to the non-Marvel Studios movies based on Marvel characters, you know, things you know, like the X-Men franchises all over the place, movies that were great, <laughs> movies that were terrible, and movies that were somewhere in between. Uh, I want to circle back to Spider-Man. Uh, and then on the DC side, I mean, you know, regular listeners know that uh, I, I am a, a Zack Snyder defender. Um, at the same time, though, I wouldn't say that Man of Steel or BVS are my favorite of the last 20 years. Uh, I certainly understand the criticisms that have been leveled against them, and I share some of them. Um I can say I think the movie I was most disappointed by, and this is not to say that I think it's qualitatively the worst of the last 20 years, but the movie I was most disappointed by in terms of my expectations versus the reality, Superman Returns. I mean, I was so excited. I can't tell you how excited I was for this movie. Like the first Superman movie that I got to see on the big screen, they were using, you know, a lot of the original score. They were repurposing this old Marlon Brando footage as Jor-El. Like, they cast an actor who like was like Christopher Reeve, you know, in the, the second. Um, and we we do love our Brandon Routh. I know you, you do as well. Uh, but I was so excited going in and so disappointed with the the movie that we got. So like that the disappointment level on that one was very high for me. Um, but again, still I you know I wouldn't say that was that was the worst. But just in terms of you know my expectations versus the reality that 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 one was was, was up there. The last movie you and I saw in theaters was Birds of Prey. Right. And not my least favorite of the last 20 years, certainly. It was enjoyable. But the fact that, and we could debate the merits of Rotten Tomatoes, but the fact that its rating was so much higher than Batman v Superman really irked me because I I, I just don't get it. It doesn't seem right to me. It was like at 76% and BVS was like 26%. It just... It's just, it feels wrong to me. I don't think that's an accurate representation of the quality of those two movies. So, for, so again, not my least favorite, um, but uh, just something that I had. And again, like, it was fine. I'm not saying, like, oh, it was a terrible movie, but I just don't think, uh, you know, at least as far as the ratings, that it, it deserved to be uh, that much higher. What if someone said that that would be reflective of uh, a hint of sexism? I would I would reject that. I don't. It's not. Uh, it has nothing to do with the fact that it's a female led movie. I think that's that's great. You know, I just I wish it had been better. I mean, I don't, you know, <laughs> like I love Captain Marvel. You know, and I thought that. Well, I, not to get on too much of a tangent here, but you you know my feelings on Rotten Tomatoes. I generally feel that they're they're too extreme. I don't know. I feel like like the Marvel movies in particular usually sit at like ninety something percent, and it's like, are they that good? I don't know about that. And then again, a movie like Batman v Superman was rated so low. It's like, come on, it wasn't it wasn't that bad. I know people will argue with, with me on that, but 
Uh, I just feel like the ratings are sometimes a little bit a little bit too extreme for and, my taste. And maybe with quote unquote comic book movies, the the lens that they're being looked at is a little bit different than what um, you know a, a movie as a piece of art would be how it would be considered. I guess one of the just thinking about the question overall, like one, it's even debatable whether this would be a quote unquote comic book movie. Um, but something like Rogue One, where it was, and we, and, and I am, we're not even huge comic uh, Star Wars fans, let's say. And, um, but just as a movie and the way it was done, the acting um, put and the way it was put together um, was, it was just beautifully done. So I don't know if that sits at the top of, you know, a, a, a movie that I think was one of, the best but again i don't know if they're looking for a a what superhero movie was uh was my favorite i mean i would say maybe wonder woman sits sits at the top of my list as well okay yeah that's that was definitely to go traditional that was definitely a great one i would say because i really thought about this a lot over the last couple of days uh spider-man 2 the sam raimi toby Maguire spider-man 2 is my favorite comic Mm -hmm. book movie of the last 20 years um you know, I, I and it's been a few years now since I've watched it, but I watched it recently enough. I mean, it hasn't been, you know, a eighteen. When I, I forget exactly the year it came out, but it hasn't hasn't been that long. Uh, you know, I've watched it within at least the past few years, and um, yeah, that I there's just something about it that has always resonated with me. I mean, it's definitely the best of the series. You know, I think it overcame sort of the growing pains of the first movie, and it didn't run into the issues that that the third one did, where that one really just fell apart. Uh, so it's definitely the best of the series, but I think it just, you know, it had a had a compelling villain with uh, with redeeming qualities, and I think it really captured the you know the inner conflict of Peter Parker wrestling with uh, you know this this responsibility and the life he really wants to lead with Mary Jane. I just really think it captured that well, and there was just stuff going on thematically in that movie that uh, that I just always responded to. So. Um, yeah, I think I have to go Spider-Man 2 as my favorite. Yeah, and then least favorite, you know, I mean, like the Josh Trank Fantastic Four, like, right, you know, that was rough. Uh, some of the X-Men movies, I I guess one of those would be, would be my least favorite. Funny enough, though, like, um. Now that you mentioned X-Men, though, like maybe Wolverine is up there for me as well. That you like? Yes, up up there. Origins? Yeah, you liked Origins. Yeah. (laughs) They're, I don't know, It has its defenders. And again, look, I look, you like what you like. I mean, I, you know, movies that I just defended a moment ago, people are like, what is he talking about? So, uh, you know, you like what you like. Um, funny enough, though, like, I, I always hold up Green Lantern and the Fantastic, the prior Fantastic Four movies as examples of, like, they're definitely not good or, or definitely not great, but I don't think they're as bad as they are often made out to be. Like, I feel like they were almost there. Like, they missed the mark. Like, they definitely missed the mark. But I don't feel like they were so far off. Like, I they I think they could have gotten there uh, with a little bit more finesse and fine-tuning. Uh, oh, and then comic stories. My favorite, I mean, DC, The New Frontier. This is not a very outside-the-box <laughs> choice. But, I mean, it's it's been my favorite for a long time. I suspect it will continue to be. I think it's, you know, as a, as a DC fan or just a comics fan in general, I think it's such a wonderful story. Uh, and we did a book club podcast about it a few years ago. I mean, if anyone hasn't read it, I highly recommend it. And then least favorite story. At first I was like, I don't know if I can even answer this because I don't know that anything really comes to mind. And then today I was like, no, you know what? 
there were two Spider-Man stories. Uh, this is now going back a good 10 years at least, but during the uh, J. Michael Straczynski run on Amazing Spider-Man, and comics fans will know exactly what I'm talking about, but one was Sin's Past, where, spoiler alert, it was revealed that Gwen Stacy, Peter Parker's first true love, had an affair with Norman Osborn, a.k.a. the Green Goblin, and became pregnant with his twins. It was, it was, oh my God, it was, you know, one of those stories where it just felt wrong. It just felt wrong. Uh, and then at the end of Straczynski's run, there was the One More Day storyline where uh, the story undid Peter's marriage to Mary Jane. And, and the way this is done is Peter, uh, Peter's Aunt May has been shot and she's dying and she's not going to make it. And so Peter makes a deal with Mephisto, basically the Marvel Universe's version of the devil, uh, to save Aunt May's life. He sacrifices his marriage. Uh, so he and Mary Jane have never been married. And, uh, again, I mean, there was a tremendous amount of backlash at the time, uh, which I shared, <laughs> shared in. <laughs> and it's funny cause like, you know, this came out, you know, years before you and I even met now, even more so now I would, I think I would be enraged reading it because it's like, you know, to give up your marriage. And it's like, yes, it was to save the life of, of his aunt who had been, you know, a surrogate mother to him. But this was also a woman who was incredibly elderly and frail and, I don't know, giving up, I don't know. It just uh, could never reconcile that, you know. And I don't think it was really meant to be reconciled because it was editorially driven. Marvel wanted a single Peter Parker back. Um, so this wasn't necessarily like an organic story. It was Marvel saying, hey, he has to be single. <laughs> Figure out a way to do it. So uh, those those two would be my least favorite. Any other comments on favorite or least favorite uh, works? No, I think that's... Uh, that covers everything. Yeah, I think that covers it. Next question is, if you could write a comic about the stories you've heard, who would you get to draw it? You know who my favorite artist is? Uh, Evan Doc Shaner. Beautiful. And he did a cover of... Uh, there was a Flash miniseries recently featuring Wally West, the Wally West version. And it was his cover that represented all of the different incarnations of of Wally West and it was go it was so striking so striking uh and he just has such a like a simple clean uh style I I love it uh so yeah we'll go with we'll go with Doc Shaner I think I would go with a calm a a group effort um by V Ken Marion Greg Shegel and the one and only Chris Russo. that's true yes our yes I you know I <laughs> <laughs> I debated how to answer that one because yes, they are our friends and I love their work and uh, I would, I would be very happy with any of them, but uh, I was, I was, I went in a different direction, but thank you for uh, making sure they were represented as well. I, I, didn't, wanna, I didn't miss any, any, I didn't want to play, right? I didn't want to, I didn't want to pander play favorites. So I, I tried to, I tried to give a different answer. No, but I think they, they could all capture the, the essence of the stories that you would be trying to tell. Yeah. And, and they I, literally have. And they've yeah they've oh, all they've and, all done oh up for no me. I did I did forget uh, one though Nick Justice yeah that's right yeah yes no so all of those four, guys have I done have four. done beautiful work for me I mean so Nick's art you saw in my comic shop country uh, Greg did the art uh, he did some of the art in my third documentary Wacky Man and he also just did the key art for uh, my new Superman podcast which was just amazing 
uh, and V Ken did a sketch. Amazing uh, because it was mostly pictures of you. Yeah, it was my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Ken did a gorgeous, gorgeous Wonder Woman sketch as a Kickstarter reward. And uh, Chris has drawn a couple of things for me. He did the Desi Westside Lord Retail team up uh, sketch a while back. And then most recently, he did the key art for our Homecoming miniseries, the the sadly short-lived yes. <laughs> Homecoming. Well, not short-lived, but maybe will be revived at, at some point. Um, but actually, most recently, he did a fully customized piece of artwork for your birthday. Yes, you... <laughs> <laughs> With a touch of humor that only Chris can provide. Yes, but you get yeah. Well, on that note, you gave me you know we mentioned the the care package that Jermaine sent. You gave me really one of the best presents I've ever received. Uh, you know, obviously we're we're in quarantine here, couldn't go out and celebrate my birthday the way we typically would. Uh, typically, we'd go to a movie, we would do our steak dinner, like it would be a whole thing. Uh, we had tickets to a Broadway play that we weren't able to go to, obviously. But uh, you solicited uh, video and photo messages from people from like all corners of my life and you put them together in the slideshow and there was art from people like greg and uh and, and chris and they were very humorous but it was again it was one of my the, my, the, my favorite presents i've ever received it it's the closest i've ever felt to george bailey at the end of it's a wonderful life like everybody comes forward and it was uh i didn't know who was coming up next uh, it was great but there's people from alternate realities and people from all these other stores i've met along the way people from work people from college like uh, you know, our family, other, you know, mutual friends of ours. It was, uh, it was, yeah, it was such a, uh, I thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. Um, it was the least I could do to help celebrate and bring the, the world a little closer when we can't be out in it. Uh, so the next question from Joe, what's the worst comic shop you've ever been to? Not necessarily for the podcast. Yeah, no, I thought about how to answer this one, too. I guess, well, to be honest, there's no one store that, like, jumps out at me. It's like, oh, that's the one I would say. So we'll start from there. I'll say I mean, it. I'll say, I'll, just to interject, I mean, it's not as if we walked into a store and were met with, you know, don't touch anything and what do you what do you want um, <laughs> walking in? So it's like, you know, I think worst is, is rel- very relative, obviously yeah in this context yeah agreed like we've never had any like horrible comic shop experience thankfully i mean i guess i would say what are the things that i like in a comic shop i like i like a full but neat store so you know i came from a store that was very full but was was cluttered and you know that was always a a source of frustration although i know people like that you know opportunity to discover but i i like things to be organized but i do like for there to be enough stuff for you to look at you know, to be honest, some stores you go into, especially younger stores that are that are just, you know, building up, you know, you could see everything that there is to see in, in a couple of minutes. Right. Uh, and that's not my favorite type of experience. So I like being able to, like, look around and, and, and explore. Uh, but I like for everything to be organized. I do like uh, a store with a mix of things. Um, I mean, yes, at, at heart, you know, am I primarily there for comics and graphic novels? Yes. But... Uh, I'm certainly not offended by like a magic section, even though I've never played magic and I don't have any interest in it. Uh, You know, I, I, of course I like to see the pops and statues and action figures and things like that. So I like, I like, uh, you know, a mix of product uh, with ultimately a focus on, on comics and graphic novels. Uh, And then, you know, just in terms of atmosphere, it's nice to be greeted. I'm not offended if, if I'm not, but uh, you know, it's, it's nice to be acknowledged when you walk in, I, I guess, you know, there have been a couple of instances where, 
And I talked about this on the podcast when we were at Challengers in Chicago. There is that chain in Chicago, Graham, Graham Cracker Comics. And, oh, right. Um, this was one of the trips that I went on for work that you, you weren't with me. And Correct. one of the days uh, I went to one of the, the locations. And again, I'm not, I, I can't say this is indicative of that store generally or of the chain generally. And I'm not saying that, but just in my limited experience at that one location that one day, it's like I was in there, I don't know, an hour and at no point did anyone come up and say, hey, is there anything I can help you with? By contrast, I was at Midtown Comics. Uh, so, you know, you and I work for Pace Law School, but uh, sometimes we have business at the um, the undergrad campus in Manhattan, in the financial district. And there's one of the Midtown Comics locations, like right around the corner from the, that Pace campus. So occasionally I'll find myself in there. And, you know, to their credit, again, this is a major operation in a huge city, but they... Um, you know, they've, they've come around and said, is there anything you need help with? So typically I don't need help or if I did, I would ask, but just as a matter of principle, it's like, I, I think that's something that stores should do. Yeah. So, I have to say in the Midtown location of Midtown Comics, we were there one day just kind of stopping by and, and a gentleman did come by and say, is there anything I can help you with? Yeah. So again, so that's generally what I like in a comic shop and no, we haven't had, you know, any horrible experiences. You know, when we went on our honeymoon in Hawaii, we went to a quartet of shops Correct. and there was that one, I forget the name, but, uh, it was the, the selection was kind of like, it was a, a real mix of stuff Yes. in the store. And I remarked to the owner, cause I saw that all of the comics, not, not just the back issues, but all of the comics on the new rack were bagged. Correct. And I said, oh, I noticed you bag all your comics and- in a positive way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wasn't like, what What the hell is this? <laughs> and what was the guy's response? He said, of course, we have to bag them all. Yeah. Well, right? I think the reasoning was like the, like the salt the water. Salt water in the air. Right. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. The response was just a little, it uh, was a little off-putting, but even more so because we had just literally just come from another store that didn't right. have them bagged. So it's like, how is this really standard operating procedure? Uh, so, you know, that was, you know, a store where I wasn't like blown away, but, um, you yeah, know, that's about it. I mean, there definitely haven't been any like horrible experiences. And yes, for those of you who are listening carefully, we did go to comic shops on our honeymoon. <laughs> you wanted to go too. Uh, so the next question, uh, if you could interview any writers or artists for the podcast, who is at the top of your list? You know, it's funny because I, I think you're... You know, between my comic shop history and the forthcoming Superman podcast, my super fan history, I think, listeners, that uh, you're going to start to hear more creator interviews. If I had to put money on it, I would say that that's in the works. And I think that the, you know, again, look, you try to look on the bright side of like our current situation. And, uh, you know, I've, I've now done a few podcasts remotely as a guest. I've been interviewed on a number of podcasts recently. And... I actually quite liked the experience because, I mean, it's basically a phone call. And, you know, because, again, as, as obviously, as you know, Steph, and as listeners know, like, I typically, with literally one exception, <laughs> I've recorded all of my podcasts in person over all these years. And I do think there's something to that. I think that there's an intimacy with, with the podcast, especially when you're face-to-face, -face, that lends itself to a, a good conversation and good content. And I also know you know, certainly as far as going to all of these stores, I know that the episodes were better by virtue of the fact that I was sitting in the store with the retailer looking around at everything, as opposed to, you know, if I had interviewed 
Ben from Zap over the phone, never having set foot in the store. So I do think there's something to the in-person recordings, but I've definitely softened my stance on feeling like, oh, they all have to be that way, especially with creators, because, you know, understandably, it's like their schedules are very demanding and it's not, you know, I don't expect them to say, oh yeah, come over to my house, (laughs) nor do I necessarily expect them to make the trip to me. So, you know, if it becomes a matter of like, well, if you want to have creators on the show, either you do it remotely or you don't have them at all. I think it, it's 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 worth uh, giving it a go uh, of of doing them remotely. So that's something that I think you're going to hear in the. I have nothing. There's nothing definite set, um, but that's definitely something that um, I'm I'm considering. As far as who it would be, I mean, look, Mark Wade was wonderful to interview for the documentary. I would very much enjoy being able to talk to him for an hour about Superman Birthright. Uh, Jeff Loeb uh, wrote, and Joe Kelly, the two of them were, were, were behind uh, my favorite, all-time favorite era of the Superman comics. So either or both of them would be really cool to talk to. And again, on the Superman theme, uh, Peter Tomasi, uh, he, you know, he wrote Superman in the Rebirth era, and he wrote Super Sons, but uh, he also wrote the most recent animated adaptation of Death of Superman, which of course was the comic storyline that got me into comics. And what he did with that with that movie, um, you know, I've always felt like again, Death of Superman has a special place for me. But I can also recognize, you know, from a storytelling point of view, like it's mostly a slugfest for seven issues, and then Superman dies. But I always felt that there were like the bones of a really emotionally re- resonant story were there, and I felt that Tomasi realized and achieved the full potential of that story. Because I watched that animated movie and I was like tearing up at the end. I didn't have that response reading the comic. Uh, so I would love, love to talk to him. And I've met him obviously a couple of times. He's in the documentary for the during the sequence where we have the signing at, at All Yet Comics. So I've met him a couple of times. Very nice guy. I think it's only a matter of time. I think, I think we'll get him on the show uh, one way or the other at some point. So that, that group would be close to the top of the list. As we were talking about, like having, you know, having them invite you over, having them come here. It reminded me of when we did uh, have Mark Wade come to our hotel room in L.A. And we were setting up and the lights were off because we had our spotlights and uh, video lights on. And we realized, like, wait, we've asked Mark Wade to come to this random hotel that he who knows if it's ever been to and these we're gonna open the door and it's gonna be completely dark inside so quickly flip the lights on before he arrived yeah he was such a good sport i I know like in retrospect that was very very gracious of him i mean you know i uh, and i i think it you know having him and you know a number of the other creators as well i mean but uh, you know especially him i think that really added a lot um for sure, for sure. Um, okay, so Eric has a couple questions. Was there anything that surprised you during filming? By that, I mean, did you get into any store expecting one thing to find something completely different? Uh, yeah, so a couple, I mean, nothing that was so shocking because for the most part, we had we had been to most of the stores for the podcast the year before. So mm-hmm. there weren't, you know, there were some new stores for the documentary, but most of them we had already been to. I would say, <laughs> I think I talked about this in the commentary the, a couple episodes ago, but Metropolis Collectibles in the city, you know, on their website, they mentioned their showroom. Oh, and so, you know, for people who've seen the movie or know Torpedo Comics, you know, they're like, they have their vault, uh, which is set up to look like a bank vault. And they have their, you know, their, their rarest, most expensive books in there, everything CGC'd. It's like, it's quite a sight. 
And, you know, reading about Metropolis, you know, he, like the showroom, I was anticipating something similar. And we went into it and it was, you know, a rectangular room with white walls. And I think like a, a showcase or two in a corner and a few books on a wall. But that was it. Right. And I think they were in the process of some renovation. So I don't know if maybe it's... it's well, they were in between exhibits, I think. Okay. And actually, um, he put up he put up comics on the wall to have a background. Because I think there yes. actually wasn't anything or not much on the walls at, at that time that we happened to be there. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Because I, I know, I remember like, <laughs> like walking into the room and it's like, oh... It's just white walls. Uh, so that was something where I was like, okay, we, you know, we got to figure this out. And yes, they very graciously put stuff up and you, you did a wonderful job in helping us, you know, uh, you know, find the right angle and, and lighting and all that. And we filmed both Vincent Serzolo, who's the, um, you know, one of the guys who runs Metropolis as well as Paul Levitz. He came and we did his interview there too. Uh, so that was, that was one thing where I was like, okay. And then West Village Comics was the store we mentioned before that, you know, didn't make it into the final cut of the movie, but, um, a very, very small space. Mm -hmm. And we had seen a couple of photos, but you know, it was even smaller in person. Right. Uh, so we really had to get creative there. Um, but other than that, I, no, I mean, I think, I mean, certainly as far as like the physical layout, I think we knew what to expect as far as like what we would capture, the you know there's this whole bit in the documentary this debate between uh, one of the workers and a customer at Zap about Plastic Man versus the Punisher, and it's so perfect that I I, I my fear is that people watching get like oh this was staged like it so perfectly captures the type of banter that you can have at a comic shop and but the reason I was surprised is that you know again I'm not at Zap on a regular basis but from the time I've spent there and the the rest of my filming. Like this was really much, that was, this was very much an outlier in the footage that I captured at Zap. Like for the most part, you know, people came in, you know, they, they picked up their books, they went down the, the, the wall of new stuff, they came up, they paid, like there wasn't a ton of chit chat and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't unfriendly, but it was just more, more efficient and more transactional. And then this customer came in, and, you know, and then this amazing thing happened. So that was something that I didn't necessarily expect to capture at that particular store, and I was very pleasantly surprised. And it, it obviously it's in the movie, and it it I think it accomplishes a lot, um, you know. So that was a that was a very pleasant surprise. And then you had you had mentioned this before, but um, we were filming at Alternate Reality Comics, and. In the same afternoon, uh, the comic book writer James Robinson and the artist J.H. Williams III, both of whom live in Vegas and are regulars at Alternate Reality Comics, unbeknownst to us, happened to walk in. Like, this was not pre-planned. And so J.H. Williams, he's in it just for for a moment. There's one little uh, soundbite of his in, in the doc. But James Robinson ha- gave us the one of the greatest gifts in this film Right? That's right. His description of, of Ralph himself, uh, which I was actually going to say was probably the the most pleasant surprise, you know, something not that I was not expecting. Um, but just as far as the 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 personality and presence that Ralph brings. Yeah. The, so, you know, if, again, if you've seen the movie, you know this, but, uh, you know, Ralph is like zipping around the store and, and Robinson gives a wonderful description of him. <laughs> that at all of the screenings got the most consistent laughter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the reason why I say it was such a gift is that, 
you know, as I was filming Ralph, it was legitimately hard to keep up with him with the camera. Right. And I felt a little frustration. And it's not his fault. Like, I didn't, t I, you know, I didn't give him any direction. I was like, just do what you do as you stock the shelves. Uh, and, and he did. And I tried to keep up with him. And I was like, oh, I'm like, what? and I remember saying, I was like, well, I can't use this footage. Like, it's, it's me. Like, you see, you literally see me, like, trying to move the camera to keep up with him. And then we got that description from Robinson. And all of a, all of a sudden, it was like, oh, like it this all works came together. Yeah. So, yeah, those were definitely some uh, some things that I were I wasn't expecting. Uh, the next question from Eric: Has Steve Odo ever said no to any request you've ever made of him? He seems like he's a ridiculously good sport. Yeah, one time, one time. So, uh, a couple episodes ago, I did this audiobook special, right, where I read uh, that that lengthy profile of Steve that I wrote in in college, and for people, especially on social media, if you saw the artwork for that episode was this collage of photos of young Odo. I did not make that art specifically for this episode. <laughs> Back in season four of My Comic Shop History, this was when we were starting to film the documentary. And I knew that I needed to build in some sort of break for myself. Like I didn't want to have to be recording new episodes while also filming. I just knew it would be too much. So I had this idea, well, okay, you know, we're going to do 12 episodes on conventions. I said, okay, we'll do, let's do six episodes, then have this like four episode mini series that I can record all in one shot or two shots and then release it over a period of a couple months. And that'll give me some breathing room. And then we'll pick up with six more convention episodes. And my initial idea was to do the life and times of Steve Odo, where we would do four episodes, you know, for as much as we've talked about his experience with alternate realities, like this would be all about his high school, college, law school years, you know, uh, leading into alternate realities. And I made the art assuming I was like, because again, to Eric's point, it's like, he's always, he's always been very agreeable. And I sent him the art. I'm like, what do you think? And he, uh, he, I guess he was somewhat concerned that he wouldn't remember enough uh, and his, his, you know, his, his memory is a little questionable these days. Uh, and I think he was also, he also expressed a little concern for, you know, he didn't want to like tell tales out of school. You know, he didn't want to say anything about someone, you know, that they might not want to be said, you know. So I think those were his, his two concerns. I think if I had pressed him on it, if I had pushed him, I probably could have gotten him to do it. But again, I'm not, I don't want to twist anyone's arm. Uh, so yeah, that was one thing that he, he, he did kind of decline. Uh, but again, I was able to use that art for the episode. So it all worked out. And, you know, again, I guess it all worked out because that four episode miniseries, instead of being the life and times of Steve Odo ended up being buying books with Ben from Zap, which to this day is one of the most popular run of episodes that we did. And people always mention it. So uh, that run of episodes exists because Steve Odo said no to uh, the life and times of Steve Odo as a miniseries uh, a couple of years ago. But yes, generally speaking, he has been incredibly, you know, gracious and accommodating. He's always game. These days, he doesn't. He doesn't always know, like, if we're filming or recording. Because remember when he showed up yes. here to film the interview for my comic shop country, and he was like shocked that there was a camera. Yes. Meanwhile, I had said, like, we're going to be filming it. But yeah. he thought, like, oh, we're doing a podcast. So th there's that. But he's he's usually game. Yeah. Good sport. Meth asks, if there is a sequel, would you also plan on interviewing customers as well? So, again, going back to what we said before, I, I very highly doubt that there will be a sequel. Watch Famous Last Words. But 
few months, I'd be like, are right, announcing the sequel? I, I don't think so. Uh, but as far as the customer thing, you know, um, I don't know, maybe it didn't seem obvious if, but like the customer perspective is represented, particularly when we, when we interview the collectors, that's really in my mind, at least yeah. where the customer perspective is represented, because that's telling you why people go to shops and why people collect and what happens to all of this stuff when it leaves the store. Um, so, you know, that segment of the movie, the people there aren't talking about specific shops in fairness. Um, but they are kind of speaking to like what drives them. So for me, that's how I wanted to represent the customer perspective. And so I feel like they are in there and we did have a couple like on the spot, you know, sound bites from customers. And I was going to say, we did interview customers. Yeah, we did. And, um, you know, and again, even just through the customer interactions, like that debate at the store, like their perspective is represented. I guess, but how do I put this? Because I, I, what I suspect you know, Meth is, is, is getting at is, is more, um, I don't know, maybe like store specific customer interviews where someone's really speaking about their experience at that particular store, maybe. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, logistically, that's a little challenging because, you know, these aren't my local stores. So I would really be reliant upon the retailers to like set something up. You know what I mean? It's like, right. I don't have any mechanism to set this up in advance. Yeah. And like literally on the first day of shooting at Challengers in Chicago, we filmed a couple of on the spot customer mm -hmm. interviews and the people were lovely. Like it was, you know, but it, it became, I, I very quickly saw what I was likely to get in these types of interviews. And it was a lot of like, oh, like I really like coming here. And it's, and you know, I just felt like we, as far as the limited real estate that we had right. to work with, that, and time. And time. And it was better served with, uh, again, talking to the retail, like getting these other these other perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, and so I hope no one takes that the wrong way and thinks, like, oh, he thinks it's not worth it to talk to customers. It's not that. Um, it's just that, again, unless this was like really planned and we had the right people to, you know, to kind of speak specifically about, about you know, distinct aspects, uh, if it just became more of, you know, like, why do you like shopping here? Um, I think the, what, would have been conveyed in those types of interviews, I think you you see it. It's shown in the movie. Like, I don't think we needed to hear more people say like, oh, I really like coming here because I get to talk about what I'm interested in. I think it's better to show that Plastic Man versus Punisher debate. Right. Yeah, and I think the the point of the movie and the story that you were trying to tell, um, yes, of course, customers are a hugely important part piece of a, a comic book shop and it's all about the heart of it. But it was someone being told the vehicle that you chose to tell it was through the, the retailers mostly um, and kind of the perspective of, of running the comic shop um, more so than, than just shopping at it. And yes, from that perspective of, uh, from a customer and any customers that we would have seen at a shop would be, it's a great store. I like coming here. I like the owner because that's why they're there. Um, if to have any sort of tension or drama in, in the movie, you'd have to find customers who, you know, weren't, wouldn't be in that particular store. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So moving on to the question from Z money, 2128. This is our one Instagram question. Do you listen to any comics podcasts? Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, I don't, I guess, you know, making my own, that's where the majority of my podcast energy goes. But uh, yeah, Word Balloon is really cool. I read comic books, which I was on recently. It is great. 
uh greg shegel he's his, his podcast has been on hiatus but uh i always enjoy listening to him as well uh, i was recently on the comics chronicle podcast that hope that host was great um so that's a show that i didn't really know about before but but i do now um so yeah a few and then i also listen to uh so well, you and I are both massive Office fans, and so uh, two of the actresses from that show have a podcast called Office Ladies, where they break down every episode. Uh, so I've been listening to that, and then Dax Shepard and Michael Rosenbaum, they have podcasts where they interview fellow celebrities. So again, these are not comics-related, but um, but they're great. And just in terms of like listening to interesting interviews, uh, that's that's those are some of the ones that I enjoy. Great. Um, so from Justin... Was any of the season three podcast filmed or was it strictly audio? I know you had the idea for the doc during season three. Just wondering if there was any overlap with season three recording and documentary production. Nope. That might have made it a little... Well, it's, it's interesting. Because on one hand, that might have made things a little bit easier if we didn't have to go back to stores. But it also would have... I think it would have been too much to try to film and record. Yeah, and that was a calculated decision uh, from the beginning. Yeah, and because even... Well, so there's one other reason why that didn't happen. I didn't have the film, the equipment, right. the, the camera equipment until, um, you know, because I, so season three of the podcast was very much about forming the relationships with these stores, casting, uh, kind of learning how I was going to tell this story and then leading into the Kickstarter campaign to raise the money to buy the equipment that I would use to make the movie. So I literally didn't have the equipment that I used to make my comic shop country until season three of the podcast was done. But beyond that, um, you know, when I was thinking about what season four of the podcast, I mean, do you remember this? I remember we were in the car and I was, I was like, well, what do I do? Cause I, you know, I could have just easily put the podcast on hiatus, which would have been easier. <laughs> but I said, no, I want to feel like someone <laughs> said that. I, you know, I was so jazzed after the Kickstarter and I felt like, you know, people, people pledged and, and, you know, they enabled me to be able to make this movie and, you know, uh, I don't know, I just wanted to keep the podcast going, but I, I remember we were talking about this and I was like, well, what do I, like, while I'm making the movie, what, what can I do podcast wise? And one of the ideas was like, well, what if we go to a store and we film them, right? Right. And then I do a podcast with them right. <laughs> later, and I think you you quickly talk sense into me, and I realize like that would be great. Like honestly, even just from a lugging equipment perspective, uh, especially when we were flying places, um, but even just in terms of you know, uh, I don't. I typically I cringe when people say this, but like just the bandwidth that is needed uh, internally to. Um, Again, to to like engage in a day of filming and then have an engaged conversation with someone on uh, behind microphones. I think it just would have been too much. Yeah. Uh, the, his next question is: Have you considered an episode reuniting a lot of the AR crew to discuss how they feel the AR community has gone? Are they disappointed that the gatherings are fewer, or have they accepted it as a natural progression? I have several questions I can ask. I know this has been discussed with Steve, Bill, and Rich. Just wondering how others view it. Yeah, uh, so, you know, this is, it's funny because uh, over the years, a couple of the AR guys have, have been like, oh, you should set up a microphone when we all go out to dinner. It'll be an episode. Uh, and I understand why, like, from their perspective, that sounds cool. And maybe even as I'm saying this, people are like, oh, yeah, that would be fun. I think this is where, and I don't say this in a, in a, a condescending way or anything like that, but I think this is where I really have to put my host hat on and really think about, and my producer hat, and really think about, well, what's going to make the best 
episode. Uh, so as far as having like a large group, like a large AR group episode, I don't think that would necessarily lend itself to uh, an effective podcast. As far as just having more of the guys on uh, to talk about it, you know, I feel like it's been covered. Uh, and I think that, you know, Steve and Bill and Rich, I think their perspectives are generally representative of what you would hear from most of the others. Yeah. Um, I think I think pretty much anyone you would poll within the AR group would say that, uh, you know, the friendships have endured. You know, we're you know not everyone is as is not, is in constant contact. We don't have the huge group dinners all the time. That they're much more infrequent, but that the friendship friendships are still there. Smaller group gatherings, you know, can happen, um, and that you know not having the store as the gathering place has definitely been a hindrance to. Uh, more regular content. I think that's generally what you would hear uh, from people. Um, and you know, in in my comic shop country, we do have uh, we do have Steve and Bill uh, and Rich, but we also have Drew and Tom and Brian. So we you know, and that's basically what they say in the movie. Uh, so one of the episodes that I still hope to do at some point, one of the episodes as part of the Homecoming, I was going to do an episode with uh, Tom Darby and Brian O'Day where. Um, we would sort of speculate, like, what if alternate realities continued to do conventions and went on the road and we sort of, like, were the ones running it, like a very what-if episode. Uh, so there were plans, and I do plan to, to do this once uh, the homecoming can resume. So you will hear from more more of the AR crew. And, you know, it's funny, with speaking of Brian in particular, I do want to bring this up with him because in My Comic Shop Country, he seemingly laments the fact that He's like, I don't know when we all get together at all anymore, right? Right. One of his big moments in the in the movie, and he says it again. Like, there's I I the the sense I get is regret. Like, it's he's it's it's a negative thing that we don't all get together. Yet he doesn't initiate. It's not like he puts out a call to everyone. And is like, hey, it would be great to see everyone. And I'm not saying he should. Like, I'm not. This is not a criticism, but I guess that's something that I'd be curious to ask him about. Like. If you, and I've, I mean, I've asked Steve this, the same thing. It's like, if, if it bothers you to whatever extent that we don't all get together, why not, why not take the step to try to make it happen? Right. You know? So I would love to be able to, to ask him about that. So, and, and I will. And I think, uh, just taking a step back for a second, the, the, or question of, are they disappointed or have they accepted it as a natural progression? I think it's both. I don't think it's an end or question. I think it's, um, they're disappointed, but they also understand. And, and you also understand that it is a natural progression, um, you know, a result of the store not being there anymore and also people's lives, uh, changing, developing, um, as a function of that as well. I agree. So the last question is from Bob. Do you know or have you ever read the letters page at the end of a comic? Have you ever written a letter to a comic and or gotten it published on the letter page? I always find it interesting, uh, an interesting time capsule when reading a back issue to see what readers wrote about and what the response was. Uh, the answer is yes to both. I, uh, you know, unfortunately, they, they've really kind of faded away now, the letters pages. And I guess they're not really needed so much right because people you you know you you can uh, post online and have those discussions there but uh yeah no i definitely always used to read the letters pages and especially you know like as a kid in the 90s reading comics where i didn't have you know friends of mine at school who were into comics and i i was shopping i was getting comics at a comic shop but i wasn't 
engaging in those types of conversations there. And, you know, the, the internet wasn't what it is now. So, uh, you know, looking back on it, and I really didn't think about it until this question, but yeah, like the letters pages, that was probably, aside from like Wizard Magazine, but that was like the only way, I guess, I would even get a sense of what other people thought about the comic I was reading. Right, you know? right. That uh, was the the comic shop Yeah, talk. so I definitely always read them. And at one time, I did write a letter uh, to one of the Superman books, uh, about one of the Superman books. I forget... I forget exactly which one or what it was about. It was not printed. Uh, it did not make it in. But that would have been cool if it had. And I think that's our last question. That is. I think I have a question. Yeah. So is there anything that, uh, you know, um, kind of a, a, a spinoff of, you know, was there anything on the cutting room floor? Was there anything kind of flipping it? Was there anything that we saw or experienced um, that you wish you got on t- video but didn't? Uh, nothing that comes to mind. Do you have anything? No, I was trying to think about it too, but I think we had that camera rolling <laughs> a lot. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, we didn't, nothing was staged in this. I mean, you know, obviously stores knew we were coming and, um, you know, a lot of stores, you know, thankfully they really accommodated us and they would, we would do the interview either before or after store hours which made things infinitely easier because there were a few stores where we did it while the store was in operation. And that was a pain in the ass. I mean, there's no way, like, it was very, it was challenging. Uh, but, you know, I know people have different, you know, time constraints. And so, you know, where we had to do it that way, that was fine. Um, but other than that, it was, and it's funny too, because, uh, you know, Ralph at Alternate Reality Comics, he posted on Facebook recently about the documentary, which I appreciate. And he talked about James Robinson and J.H. Williams. And he even said, he's like, like, I didn't even, like, it didn't even occur to me to, like, try to get them to come for this. Like, it, again, it just happened that they were there. Right. So, um, it, you know, it was really, we didn't quite know what we were going to get. And it's like, yeah, when the stores that I went to on a Wednesday or, you know, when All Yeah had their signing or when Acme had their midnight release, it was like, okay, I mean, nothing's a guarantee, but you at least had a sense of like, okay, like, you know, people are going to be lined up for the midnight release. There's going to be a fair amount of people at the signing. Uh, people are going to be hanging around, chatting at the at the you know on the Wednesday. But other than that, you know, any of the other stores, it was really kind of a crapshoot as far as like, well, are you know, will there be customers there? Will there, will there be meaningful and or entertaining interactions? Like there were there was no guarantee. So you know, I'm really happy with what we got. Yeah, I can't think of any instance where like something happened, and I was like, damn it, I wish I had been filming that. <laughs> Actually, there's two things, both related to Acme Comics. The first is we were waiting at Acme Comics for someone to be interviewed and we weren't able to wait any longer. So who knows what that interview would have would have brought. That oh, I know. Jermaine, he was like, oh, this guy's on his way. <laughs> yeah. It was a few hours. Then it got to the point where we like we had been filming for a while and then we were waiting for a while. And uh, I was I was pretty fried. Uh, so we just called it, but yeah, that was that interview that didn't happen. Uh, I think that was with the gentleman who helped Jermaine get the job there. I might be mixing this up, but you know, he in the movie he says like I had a friend who worked there, and then I would go and sort of help out as well. And um, I think that ultimately led to Jermaine getting the job. I think that's the friend he was talking about. Oh, speaking about uh, surprises, Jermaine's parents. Oh yeah, you know that was a very pleasant surprise. That yes. was like the kind of perspective that. I, you know, I, well, I wouldn't expect to get necessarily. And, uh, I saw there are a couple people, 
and maybe this was on Twitter or something, but someone was like their favorite moment in the documentary is when I asked his mom, like, oh, do you know Jermaine's <laughs> alter ego? And she was like, oh, Lord Retail? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was a very pleasant uh, surprise. And so the other thing related to Acme Comics is when you just said nothing was staged. Now, I don't know if we would consider this staged, but it was some egging on your part of of one of the scenes in there. Who, who, what, who put, did I egg on? You put Jeruso up to uh, <laughs> some banter, let's call it friendly banter with Jermaine. <laughs> I guess, but I don't think I don't think Chris needed any prompting, really. I feel like he that was I feel no, like it was he, nothing out of yeah. me, but but that was a a little bit not to not to shatter the illusion, but it was a little bit of a, a setup that we wanted to catch on film. Yeah, it, well, it's you know this whole thing of like the personality of the retailer, uh, and with Lord Retail in particular, like it's just fascinating because um, again, I think, and I've you know I've talked about this whether in interviews or other episodes of this show, but you know just the dichotomy between this grand alter ego, I mean Lord Retail. Right. And then, but, you know, Jermaine is so, you know, uh, you know, unassuming and mild mannered, um, obviously very knowledgeable and passionate about about comics and what he does. Um, but it's just, you know, the, the personality, like it's fascinating. And um, just like, again, going back to the alternate realities movie, you know, it's one thing to interview Steve and you get a sense of his personality. But getting everyone else's input, I think, just makes it so much richer. And so you know, especially for the personality of the retailer segment of this movie and with Lord Retail in particular, having Austin, you know, his his assistant manager, having Giarusso, a friend and creator and customer of Acme and having his parents, like, you know, getting those perspectives and getting everyone weighing in about like, okay, this this alter ego that that he's uh, created, uh, it was, was fascinating. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess there was a little prompting there with Giarusso, but uh, yeah, I still I wouldn't go so far as to say it was staged. Well, thank you for answering all of the audiences and my questions, and kind of giving us more insight into the 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 mind of the master behind the the art. <laughs> I think this has been like two hours, and I I didn't anticipate that this episode would run this long. But I thank you, uh, and I thank all of our listeners who submitted questions. Um, and I appreciate, Steph, you know, your input uh, and, and, and helping me answer some of those and giving your point. Was there anything that uh, that you wanted to add to any of the questions that maybe I didn't give you a chance to earlier? No, I think uh, I was able to interject <laughs> where, where I felt that uh, my opinion would be, I don't know, of value at all. Um, has it only been two hours? Jeez. <laughs> oh, we're in quarantine, so I might as well do three hours. I don't even know now. Do I just put this out as a two-hour episode? Do I break it up? I don't even know. Put it out as a two-hour episode. What, what else are people doing? What else doing? are people going to die now? I mean, unless, again, they have, unless they're homeschooling, working from home, uh, an essential worker, you know, but anyone else who's uh, looking for something to do. Uh, in their free time. Oh, yeah. One more question that uh, I keep getting asked. It's fascinating to me because, you know, you know, and, you know, people who follow on social media know, you know, I've been posting about this movie a lot. I want to make sure everybody knows about it. I want to make sure they're excited about it. I want to make sure they know where to get it. And it's funny because, like, every time I post about it and I include the links, right, 
And sometimes I'm like, what? Like, people must know at this point where to get this movie. But I keep getting asked, especially on Instagram, but uh, but elsewhere, too. Where can well, I, I watch know. this? <laughs> where can I watch this? Uh, and I'm not, this is not a complaint. I appreciate the fact that people care enough to ask. It's just so funny to me because I, like, to myself, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, people must be getting sick of these posts I try to mix it up and I try to have valuable content and the deleted scenes and all that. But still, it's like, oh, like, I don't want to beat people over the head with this. Yet, yet, <laughs> apparently people still need more reminders. So Amazon and iTunes, um, obviously in the United States. And then uh, it's also on the UK Amazon store. And on iTunes, it's in a bunch of international iTunes stores. So Canada, UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, uh, there's a bunch of them. Um, non English-speaking countries, we've not expanded there. I don't know if we will. Uh, so pe- like people from other parts of the world have reached out. Like there was someone uh, in, in Israel, and there have been a few. There have been a few other places where the movie is not yet. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I'm making a list, and I'll share it with my distributor. I don't know if that's something that they would take action on. Um, but uh, but anyway, so the but it is available, you know, widely available, certainly throughout America and um, and a number of other international territories as well. Uh, but for anyone who somehow <laughs> somehow got to the end of this episode and still didn't know where to watch this movie, and you know, to everyone who has watched, whether you purchased or you rented it, uh, you know, if you were a Kickstarter backer and you watched it that way, if you came to one of the festival screenings, however you watch, well, not if you pirated it, I don't thank you then, but. Uh, if you if you, can't, if you watched it through any of those other legitimate means, uh, you know I appreciate it so much. And uh, you know if you didn't, well, I don't know why you would listen to this commentary or the commentary two weeks ago or the Q and A now without having seen the movie. But uh, I hope that you know you're you're able to take the ninety minutes to watch it. I keep getting feedback from people who say that you know it it you know really made them you know long for their comic shop. I there was just someone the other day who who wrote on Instagram that. Uh, like they hadn't been to their comic shop in a while, even before this pandemic, and now this has inspired them to go back once they're able to. Um, so that's a wonder, like that's a wonderful thing. I love to hear stuff like that. Um, but so I'm so I'm immensely grateful to everyone who's watched. For anyone who hasn't, you know, I encourage you to. I thank you, Stephanie, for your your continued support. How have I been? It you know in the so you know we released this movie you know during quarantine, like all this stuff going on. Uh, how 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 do you how have I been? Like when in the weeks after the release, generally, we'll talk about it after the quarantine's over. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I joke, I joke. Um, no, I mean, methodical, organized, passionate. Uh, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that anything is has been different or changed i'm not sure what you yeah what, no i know no, I, I mean ha, maybe stress levels or frustration has sometimes been a little higher but again not not anything that would be affected by by the quarantine no i would agree with i mean i think it may, my stress as far as like you know getting the press opportunities and and you know just the how the movie's performing i think my stress is a little amplified because there's no you know, like if we were going to work, it's like, you know, I'm in a different space. Like I'm like there, I would have more distraction. You know, there'd be more opportunity to sort of like, okay, turn that switch off. Right. right. But I don't feel, even though I'm working from home, like I, I, I think I've been a little bit more fixated on the release. I mean, it, believe me, it would have loomed large <laughs> in my head anyway, 
but I think even more so now. I mean, I think the the where the where any frustration has come in, and this is probably what you've heard the most, is you know just in terms of press opportunities. Like we've had some amazing ones, and I'm immensely grateful. But there's a singular moment happening right now where comic shops, the comics retail industry, is being covered in mainstream media like way more than ever before. I mean, there have been articles about comic shops. You know, in New York Times, LA Times, Hollywood Reporter, Sci-Fi, USA Today, all these places. And it's like, I just wish that this documentary were part of that conversation. Uh, I think among people watching it and the people who have found it, it is. And, you know, we were on Newsarama and within the comics industry, that's amazing. But, you know, I I want this movie to be able to escape a certain, uh, uh, to achieve a certain escape velocity. And I think, you know, that mainstream press is is one huge way to get there and uh, so, you know, there's a, a, a publicist I've been working with through the distributor, and obviously I've been engaging in my own efforts to try to get the movie covered by any of these outlets, and we'll see, and, and maybe something will have happened by the time people are listening to this, I don't know, but uh, again, I just, I, my, my hope, my continued hope is that this movie can, can be a big part of the conversation, and an even bigger part of the conversation, and um, so yeah, that's, I know something that you've heard a lot from me over, <laughs> over these past few weeks, but it's just like, when has, when have comic shops ever been in the news as much as they are now? And it's like, here's a movie all about comic shops that just came out. That's relevant to the, the news. That's right. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, suddenly we became very timely. So, you know, uh, so again, as far as my stress level, I guess that's, <laughs> that's, that's played out, but, uh, no, it's been a, it's been a great release. I love, and again, the response has just been tremendous. So, uh, I appreciate it. And I thank you for uh, answering all these questions and being part of this episode. Uh, always a pleasure. Hopefully we'll have you back before uh, a year from now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but so thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, I hope everyone stays safe, healthy, sane, stay inside. Uh, come back here in two weeks. Uh, Sean Hendricks will be back for our special uh, epilogue episode uh, to my comic shop country. We'll talk all about how Sean became the owner of Fat Moose following the filming of the documentary. Until then, don't be a flat squirrel. <laughs>